He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands, battle station! This is Captain Kirk. Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. No! Alright, we're back with Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 29, and uh, if you garnered from listening to Star Wars Monthly Monday, it's a special month because, once again, Scott Gardner is mired in work, so it's it's like one of those crazy Eddie ads or whatever where the boss is out of town on, on business and the employees, you know, the inmates are running the asylum, so um, we've had a sort of a, a show that we've wanted to do if... if if Scott wasn't around, and that's our Star Trek First Contact show. And I have dragged out from under his rock the incomprehensible the shag. Or the, the inco- irredeemable, irredeemable shag. shag. The from irreducible shag. That's probably appropriate, yes. <laughs> uh, probably. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm really excited about being here. We, we knew we had to do this one without Scott just because, you know, he'd gripe and complain the whole time and I'd have to tell him he's wrong and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So It would take but, up um, so – I mean, telling Scott he's wrong takes up so much time in the show. Sometimes it's a nice <laughs> little break, you know. <laughs> Wait, um, some some of your listeners may not have any idea who I am if they haven't been listening to Star Trek Monthly Monday or the Doctor Who special we mm-hmm. did. Um, Which they should have. I, they, you're damn right they should have. Get off your lazy asses and download the thing already, people. God. They're probably already on their asses, so, you know, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that a lot of people listen to this while they're, like, exercising. So They are, they are uh, you know, freaks after all. Yes. <laughs> I would, I would, I, I, you know, I would really like to know if there's any listeners out there who are exercising while listening to True Freaks. That's, uh, I mean, if there are, if it turns out that there's a lot of listeners working out to us, you know, we'll, we'll play some appropriate music, you know. <laughs> we'll, we'll put some, <laughs> we'll pump you know, up the jam. yeah, we will. We'll pump up the jams for you. <laughs> we'll be like your nerd Jane Fonda's. There it is. That's every nerd's dream right there is a nerd Jane Fonda. <laughs> Pre-Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> or just her from um, Barbarella. Barbarella, you know. yeah. There you go. Oh. Well, um, I was, <laughs> now that you've had a moment, 
Uh, I was just going to give people a little bit of background on me. I, I haven't been on one of your Star Trek shows before. No. And, and frankly, actually, you and I have never really talked about Star Trek. No, much. we haven't. So I, I, I thought I'd give you my, uh, my quick Star Trek resume, Ooh, if you will. Ooh, good. Yeah, you better do that. So to justify why I deserve to <laughs> why be you're here. here? And, and, your, <laughs> and your listeners will be like, I know ten times more than that schmuck. Get him off the show. Well, you're not on anyway. the show, are you? <laughs> <laughs> good point. Um, obviously, I've seen all the movies. Absolutely love them. Uh, I've seen all the next-gen episodes at least three times per episode. Long story behind that. Uh, I've seen most of the original series. Uh, I haven't seen all of them, um, and it's been a while. I've seen most of DS9, most of Enterprise, and a good chunk of Voyager. Uh, Voyager, I just lost interest in after a while. You've got me on all that. I'm I I know nothing of Deep Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and I watched the I think the first episode of Enterprise, and that's about it. Enterprise is really good and just did not, didn't get the fair shake it deserved. So I heard you had to stick with it a little while at the beginning, but once it got going, it got going. Oh, the second season, or was it the third season? Whichever one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's really good. Um, I'm also a fan of the novels. Um, I, I My little my era, my niche, the, the period I like to read about is the original crew during the movie years. So, you know, anything set between... The, you know, um, after the original series and before Star Trek Six is kind of the, that's my my, uh, my my zone. I love those original um, you know novels. I've also read some of the Star Trek Next Generation novels, and it's the Peter David does a series called the New Frontier novels that take place in the Next Gen time period. I've read all of those, absolutely love them. I think the New Frontier novels are probably the best Star Trek novels out there. Um, I've been trying to convince Scott to read them; they're so freaking good. Did some of the collectible card game. You know, I've read some of the comics here and there. I played some of the video games. I mean, it boils down to, um, you know, I've got a real passion for Trek. So, but am I a walking encyclopedia? No, I'm not. That's good because neither am I. So I'm Fair sure enough. we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna trample all over something tonight. So <laughs> wouldn't be a show if we didn't. There it is. <laughs> so okay, you're qualified. You may even be more qualified than me. Because then get the hell then get the hell off the show. Yeah, really. I, I might as well just leave. <laughs> it could be exactly a, just, just get, get well, leave, leave all your recording equipment if you don't mind and leave it on because <laughs> I got to talk about this thing. Well, let's um, let's get going. You've been so kind. This guest even came prepared with an entire agenda. I'm on to <laughs> your agenda, man. Uh oh, uh oh. Your, your two true freaks agenda. That's right. I have an, an agenda with two true freaks. It's exactly right. I'm incorporating myself into all the podcasts. If Michael Bailey hadn't beat me to the damn <laughs> podcast, curse that Michael Bailey. I hate that bastard. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, I'm also a semi-regular co-host for Michael Bailey, so I'm allowed to say those you, things about yeah, him. Yeah, you can, you can say that. And uh, All right. So uh, first on the agenda is a little bit of a recap of the the plot. Um, um, shall I or would, or, or would you like to? Why don't you go ahead and I'll and I'll just keep interrupting you. Okay, you that works for me. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, so this is really going to show my now. Now I'm pretty sure this is the technically the first next generation movie, like entirely next generation, right? This is the one after generations. That is absolutely correct. This is the wow. first um, Damn, good. Th- first Star Trek feature film that did not feature any of the original cast from the '60s show. So, so this one starts out with you know. Uh, a Borg attack on on the Earth, and and the Enterprise is sent to you know 
guard the neutral zone because Picard was trauma because the Federation obviously is so sensitive that they think it might be traumatic for Picard to deal with the Borg again or may compromise him. So they send him out into the you know into the neutral zone to guard that while this is going on. But you know as Earth's defenses fall, you know uh, the Enterprise has to leap to their their aid and. Uh, once they get in using uh, Picard's knowledge of the Borg, they, they quickly dispatch the Borg cube there, which which shoots out some sort of, you know, small globe, which disappears in front of Earth in some sort of time distortion. And then the Earth, of course, turns Borg. So obviously the Borg have gone back in time and fucked things up. And once again, the Enterprise, you know, through fiddledy fuckery, um, manages to follow them back in time. Two, my, my favorite. My, my favorite is that Riker, you know, in his typical role, really helps you know explain the moment when Data says, you know, temporal wake, and Riker jumps up and goes, "Time travel." It's like, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for explaining everything, Riker. <laughs> we can see where this is going real quick. And uh, he's not yelling. He's not yelling. Red alert! He's stating the obvious. So, so it turns out the Borg have gone back in time to Earth's first contact day to destroy the first warp drive ship. You know that Zephram Cochram builds, thus securing the Earth. You know the Earth for the Borg, and of course the Enterprise crew has to destroys the Borg globe but not before the Borg have somehow managed to beam aboard the Enterprise unbeknownst to the Enterprise and are quickly taking over the ship and um, even capture Data, and uh, who meets the Borg Queen, who tempts him with with his, uh, with his a Pinocchio-like uh, uh, <laughs> you know, contract to, to turn him into a real boy and uh, experience some of the pleasures that a real boy experiences. So she goes. She goes all Tasha Yar on him. Mm-hmm. So you get you get this sort of split story with, um, you know, Picard t- trying to take the Enterprise back, and at the same time you've got a, a crew led by Riker on the on the ground who are trying to get Cockrum's ship launched in time so that he can hit warp drive and the Vulcans will passing Vulcans will notice it and make first contact with Earth. And spoiler alert, they do it. <laughs> They pull it <laughs> off, and uh, we get to see an awkward scene involving um, a bad cover of a Credence song and um, Vulcans. <laughs> <laughs> the best is the uh, the monster truck parked next to the Vulcan spaceship. Yes, that's my yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that did, did I get everything fairly? Yeah, fairly uh, roughly. Yeah, I think I, that gives a good overall plot of the film, I think. So so thanks for listening, folks. And Mike Poteet, who I asked on the show but couldn't make it at such short notice, also pointed out to me that yesterday was actually First Contact Day. So oh. we are recording this the day after First Contact Day. So Wrong we're, year, we're fa- but yeah, it is. You're absolutely unco- right. For just, randomly, for just randomly sort of picking out the show, we, I think we nailed the... The right time to uh, do it. Perfect. Even though it's going to be like a week after first contact day by the time it gets out. But that's okay. Just take our word for it, you know. Go ahead and pull back the curtain. Way to go. (laughs) That's what I do. I am the spoiler. (laughs) But um, like you said with um, Riker, there's there's that cheesy time, time paradox, but they... 
They, at least it's addressed. <laughs> it's, I just I just love him. He, he, that was always his function was either to yell red alert or to repeat what someone else just said, but in layman terms. I mean, that was always his job on the show. <laughs> so, you know, temporal wake apparently is too confusing, so he has to go, time travel. Hmm. <laughs> so, well, now I, I, I pick on Riker. It's not very fair because, you know, truthfully, he was barely, he, he really, his role on screen wasn't nearly as important as his role behind the camera. Right, right. Right, he gave himself a sort of kind of, he just he he got the sort of walk-on role where he got to just sort of sit in the background and smile through the whole movie. <laughs> he does a lot of sitting in the background and and smile, you know, drinking in the the historic moments of it. Um, got got a lot of the comedy bits too. Yes, yes, and uh, but um, you know, it's a, it's it's a it's a um, it's a good uh, Star Trek. Um, you know, um, tradition that the that the first in command gets to direct. I I just can't see Picard ever directing a a Star Trek movie. Did he ever? I'm, I shouldn't say that before I. He didn't. He he didn't ever direct a. You know, Shatner was of course had to direct at some point. But you you know it's the the first final frontier. Yeah, the 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 first in the first in command is usually has a pretty good. Um, record in Star Trek, uh, you know, um, Nimoy's, I like Nimoy's Star Trek movies a lot. And, uh, yes, and having somebody good. from the cast direct is, is always a good thing because they know the characters, you know, they, they, they know the feel for it. And in the case of, uh, Frakey's, he had a lot of, uh, um, prior experience directing for the show. So he yeah. knew his way, you know, he knew his way around a set and, 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 uh, and that's one of my general impressions of the show is, or of this movie is that, uh, you can tell it, 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 it's almost a split, a, a split storyline. It's almost like two episodes of the TV show, you know, with a split storyline, one on the planet and one on the ship. And, um, with the one on the on the planet not being very cinematic you know being more like a tv production you know it definitely hmm. definitely looks like a, a a soundstage to me you know the uh post-apocalyptic earth looks like it was filmed on one big soundstage and they just sort of moved everything around a little bit to to make each set you know that that's why you always saw it sort of in that in nighttime for for, for the most part um yeah. Yeah, we got a couple of shots like out in the mountains, you mm-hmm. know, in, in, in a nice gra- grassy areas. Right. But you're right; the majority of it was inside, and that probably comes from Frakes, as you said, experience directing television. This was actually his first feature film, and he had to like study a lot of film theory and, and the the widescreen aspect of right. movies to to learn it. And um, you know, actually, this is kind of interesting. I found out while I was reading up on this. Um, there was actually two other directors that were offered the project before they gave it to Frakes. One of them was Ridley Scott. Wow. Yeah, that I know. Been I thought interesting. that interesting. Yeah, but ultimately, the, uh, for whatever reason, those two turned it down, and then they decided to give it to Frakes because he felt like they, he, as you, exactly what you said, he understood Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And, so, and 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 the under, you know, and the and the characters, you know, I mean, all all the characters could probably relax under Frakey's directing because they they'd worked with him before obviously it must have worked out well because it's, he seemed to to do it quite a bit and um you know frankly 
it seems to me that that the Star Trek movies until the reboot have just had that diminishing not really diminishing returns but diminishing budget you know and by the time next generation was established i think the 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 basically the the company the movie company was basically like you're limited in your budget it it might be better to have somebody who's more used to shooting tv doing it because a it's got to be a lot cheaper than ridley scott <laughs> B, when you're shooting for TV, you know, you're super budget conscious. You're doing every, you're cutting every corner possible. You're saving every little scrap you can. So, you know, there, there, there's something to be said for directing these movies almost like a TV show. And there's parts, you know, watching it, last time I saw this was when it was on the big screen. And, oh, wow. and watching it on a, on a TV screen, it comes across to me a lot better because it's, it was more like watching the TV show with much better cinematography. Although there were points when, you know, the 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 the, the big screen aspect of it um, would kind of belie, say, the low budget of the Borg outfits. Like a mm-hmm. lot of times when you'd see the Borgs from the legs down and you'd see their feet, they look like rubber, <laughs> like the bottom of rubber pajamas, sort of. You know, you could tell they're yes. sort of made of rubber, and. It, 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 it looks kind of prop like, and on TV it didn't at all. <laughs> but when when you blow it up, it's the same with, you know. And this also made me realize I don't know why I never thought of this before, but man, they were on a timer with these movies because all because of Brett Spiner. Everybody else could age, but Brett Spiner's not allowed to age at all. Oh, and I good noticed point. his makeup was on. They they had the makeup just like plastered on him. <laughs> and I think it was a race against time, and I would not want to be Brett Spiner and have to like maintain as I grew older, you know, and be like, I'm the only Star Trek person who can't let my, you know, get my gut on, you know. <laughs> That's a Star Trek tradition right there is is getting your, you know, getting getting that getting that uh, the old belly going, you know, as as the movies go on, and he, you know, how are they going to explain that, you know? Oh, Data's got an extra battery pack. <laughs> I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, they, um, it's interesting because they, they really catered to Brent Spiner quite a bit, actually. Um, I guess they viewed him as kind of like the second most popular person behind Patrick Stewart. So when, when he was signing the films, he, he's, he was sick of doing the makeup. He was sick uh-huh. of doing Data. And so he would do things like he'd say, okay, I'll do your next Star Trek movie, but you have to promise me like two other films, two other Paramount movies. So that's, I think that's how he got his role in you know, Independence Day. Be, yep, I think that's how he got his role in Independence uh-huh. Day and things like that. I personally, I mean, my favorite of the Next Generation movies was Insurrect. Was is it Insurrection, the one set on the planet where nobody's aging? Well, that's the name of the film. But that can't possibly be your favorite because it was shit. Really? That's that that is my that was my favorite of the next generation because it was the most like an episode of the TV show. I was <laughs> I was very that, happy to go into the movie theater and see two good episodes of of Star Trek The Next Generation. I was perfectly happy. As a matter of fact, yeah. I, I that's that would make me happy with all all Star Trek movies like that is, you know, just I I would pay to see two good episodes you know see i had just seen 100 and what, 179 episodes already i didn't want to see another one i wanted to see something new and bigger and sc- and that's what this was see for me for me this is 
out of the next-gen films, without a doubt, my absolute favorite one. And if you throw in the classic-gen... I'm sorry, if you throw in the, the original series and even the reboot movie, this is damn near the top. It's not the, it's not my number one, but it's really high up there. I love this movie. I think it's a great film. There's a... And you probably know this, and I don't, I'm, our listeners probably do too, but there's a little bit of a legend about Star Trek films that uh, the even-numbered films are really good, and the odd-numbered films usually aren't as good. For example, Star Trek Two, Star Trek Four, Star Trek Six, all great films. Um, and we could debate the merits of one, three, and five, certainly, but the general populace seems to really right, like the, the even-numbered films. Thumb. Yep, First Contact was number eight. Uh, number ten was then um, what was it? Uh, Nemesis, which I hated. I really, I I walked out of that movie going. I washed my hands of Star Trek movies from now on. They're wow. they're not allowed to make a real movie. Obviously, yeah, that movie was a mess. That movie was I- a big mess. Maybe it was the audience I saw it with because. I was watching this movie going, you know, this is just horribly written and lazy, and the audience were all going, oh my god, there's a new, we get to see a different room in the Enterprise that we haven't seen before, and they were cheering and clapping for that, and I'm like, really, that's what you came for, not for story, or, or, I have to watch them all, like, I've only seen all the Next Generation ones in the theater when they came out, I haven't seen any of them since then, I've, I've only become curious again, Lately, now that I'm starting to watch the series again, now mm-hmm. now I'm kind of hot to see them all again and and give them all another chance. Um, maybe not till I get a little further in the in the series, but I'm 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 ready to like them. I'm ready to 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 like them. But I remember I remember seeing this movie and I enjoyed it in the theater, and then it was downhill from there on. But just by a little, you know, it just uh, um. A lot of what people complained about the reboot is is what uh, I thought about that that last one with um, um, Picard's clone or brother or whatever it was. Yeah, and some there, clone thing. It was, it was all I... flash and no story and and just a lot of ridiculous things that didn't you know, you know, like like big action set pieces that were just stupid with data jumping between ships. I I have to see it again. That was kind of dumb. I'd, I'd have to see it too. I've only seen it once in the theater. It was a, it was a really good setting for me. I was seeing it with my brother, who I don't see very often, and we grew up watching the Next Gen episodes together uh, every week. So it was kind of a cool moment for us. So uh-huh. I, I think I was I, I think I was biased. So I'd have to watch it again to see you know what I think now. So, but it's interesting. I'm kind of a counterpoint to you and Scott in that my background's really in the Next Gen era, whereas your background's really stronger in the in the classic era so but for me this movie is the next gen's finest hour or two hours but it's, it's a good um, movie i think the beginning of it is whoa boy talk about uh intense it's like a horror movie mm-hmm. you know yeah and uh i think i think they threw a lot of the money for this movie right at the beginning too in the first half hour and then you know it that, that very first scene was actually the last scene they filmed that, that they filmed but, the one with uh, on the board ship with the drill in the eye and all that. Yeah, that's pretty. In- that that's was- pretty intense for a star. I remember seeing the Star Trek movie, going, "This movie's half uh, Hellraiser." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's uh, getting into creepy, creepy issue. You know, creepy body issues and stuff like that. And uh, 
you know, I mean, all the scenes with Data and the Borg Queen were were just, you know, wonderful. They, I, I wanted them to go a little further. You know, I wanted them to go, uh, 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 explore that aspect of it a bit more. But still, it was, you know, when they gave him a little patch of hair with, or, you know, skin with hairs on it and and blow on it, and you see Data just going, ow, it's just awesome. You know, <laughs> um, and. Uh, you know the and the Borg Queen playing the whole like repulsive, sexy thing was you know just very. I was I remember going, man, I like having the elements of horror in a Star Trek movie. You know they they certainly would end up in the in the TV show, so they they belong in the movies. I mean the, the things from like you know injecting the I guess nanites we call them nowadays whatever but injecting the Borg virus or nanites into the people and watching them transform right there I mean there's just a lot of really like you said creepy imagery great lighting the the way the Borg you know kind of almost spread like an not the people but the their technology spread like an infection across the hallways in the ship I mean a very horror type feel to it it, it was really well done and, and being his first the- theatrical film I was impressed with what Frakes did well I mean there's there's a, uh, I mean, there's a whole sequence in there that's right out of Alien, you know, with the two crew members that are going through the ductwork, and you know, one of them gets a, what's that up ahead? Wah! And then the other one goes up to find out what's going. That's right out of Alien. All right, can I say something really shallow? Sure. <laughs> that girl in that scene, because there's a guy who goes up there and he gets killed first, and then there's a girl who comes up after him. Yes. She's got like red hair. Yes. Or She's got gingeritis. Bad. She's just like fucking ugly. I'm sorry. I mean, it's really shallow of me to say I have, that. I have. Well, I have a. I have a theory of that, and you know what? I thought the exact same thing, Shag. So we're in the same hollow, shallow boat, in the same shallow waters, paddling around. And, and I thought to myself, I will bet you there's a certain number of fan club people <laughs> who get a. <laughs> you know, I think maybe, maybe she won a contest. I don't know, or a, a raffle, or something, or is or is you know Gene Roddenberry's you know step niece or something. You know, I always You're probably totally right. I bet that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, I'd like to think that it's because the casting people are like, let's cast normal people for the Enterprise. And they don't really do that. They always cast diverse people, but um, at the same time, they're they're all usually pretty fairly. Uh, I guess maybe in the future, more people are fit and and in good health are healthier. I mean, she was a healthy specimen. She just wasn't sure wasn't beautiful. So yeah, I think she was a contest winner or a niece or or something like that. That's what that's what I got the idea. Um, she she goes beyond just. She has some not lines, a, yeah. I mean, you. Get, she was nat- She was ugly. I mean, it's there's 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 being not attractive, or, or you know, like normal people, like you know, are just. Are you not saying gorgeous. ugly people shouldn't be in Starfleet? I'm just saying she was ugly. I'm just saying I'm I'm just going on a limb and saying <laughs> I just saying not that, she ugly. It's not that she was a normal looking person and therefore not a not beautiful. No, she was an ugly person. She fell in the lake <laughs> in the holodeck and they were scraping ugly off the top of it for a week. Well, it didn't help that it was all weird zoomed-in shots, and she was all sweaty, and her forehead was wrinkly. It mm-hmm. didn't help either. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm that guy, folks. I'm that shallow guy. It makes judge me calls on red shirts. Yep, that's. <laughs> and there's somebody like 
the next day talking about this pie. They talked for 10 minutes about this walk-on with this red-haired girl, and I don't know what's wrong with them. They're like, that's my sister. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna get an angry letter from. <laughs> it was she. She was uh, uh, She was part of the Make a Wish Foundation, and she was dying oh, of cancer. Lord, God, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, we were talking about that opening sequence. I one of the things I thought also was really kind of cool was very quickly they conveyed to you that Jean Luc had been transformed into Locutus. And for going for people going into this, the uninitiated, right? And I always try, I always try to think of it that way because like I, I try and decide should I make my wife watch this or not. That's how I kind of always think of everything because she's a total non geek. Well, I've never seen the whole Locutious story either, so it was helpful for me for sure. Oh shit! You've never seen Best of Both Worlds Part One not, or Two? I have not seen Star Trek: The Next Generation past the third season. So this was I'm, in the third season. Huh? It was the season finale of the third season. Then I then it, then it was before I was out before I. Just as the Borg showed up, that's when I got so involved in my school that I stopped watching TV at all and was like, oh, I'll wow. catch up with this on reruns. I'm going to have to. And just, I'm so looking forward to, to getting into that, getting into that time period that I haven't seen before. I'm going to be, I'm going to have like four seasons of Next Generation brand new. I mean, like season three, four, five, and six, I mean, the or three, four, and five—they totally like found their legs. It's so good, and, and wow. Okay, and so you perfectly understood the film without seeing Best oh, of yeah. Both Worlds. Which yeah, is yeah, good. yeah. Okay. It, it, it explained it it perfectly. Um, and um, I'd actually I had seen an episode of the T. I was familiar also with the fact because I had seen an episode of the TV show or part of an episode where they were walking through a Borg ship and being ignored, you know, because mm-hmm. they didn't pose a threat. So I. I remember, like, I remembered that from the TV show vaguely, so that was something. But they explained that in the show too. I mean, he, yep. I mean, you have Picard there as a walking, talking, you know, exposition machine through the whole movie. To, <laughs> not that he does. I mean, he, not that it's awkward or anything, but it's it's very handy. You've got his character to, to fill you in on on how what what's going on with the Borg. The only time it was awkward, I would say, was probably during the Ahab scenes. Where him and uh, Alfred, Alfred Woodard, is that her name, um, are arguing about whether they should abandon the ship or fight the Borg. And he's gone all Ahab from Moby Dick and gone batshit crazy. And some of that stuff, some of that exposition was a little bit like, okay, I get it. You know, you're, you're, for, you're feeding it to us. But, um, but for the most part, yeah, it was done very well. I, I just remember, you know, I mean, getting getting absorbed by the Borg must have been good for Picard because I'm in the I'm in the, um, you know, we're in the first season of TNG. We're in the you know Jean Luc I surrender Picard era, and right. he definitely grew a set of balls. They dropped or something after the Borg <laughs> took him over because he goes all Kirk in this one. You know, he's just like turn the ship around. We're it's the Enterprise. We're going to save the day. You know. But you're, you know, they, and he gives everybody the chance to opt out, and and off they go, you know. Well, I uh, don't be going, don't be going looking for this uh, Picard in the series too much. Um, they even made a point of that in this film. They, they, because there was no Kirk, you know, in this movie. Right. This was the first time without Kirk. They really did try to to make Picard more of an action hero. I mean, you see, I mean, it, towards the end, you see his guns, you know, when he's climbing and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, he, they really did intentionally try to make him more of an action hero in this film. 
So it's, you definitely see more of that here than you did in the series. At least he gets to fight in zero G, so it wasn't too strenuous on the old guy. You know, <laughs> it's all slow, <laughs> slow movements. Hey, but, be nice to the other balls, Captain. And 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 speaking about the character of Lily, does she she really has a thi- you know she and Picard you know she's sort of I think she's sort of checking out Picard you know, thinking. Yeah, I like Cockrum, but this balding white guy's not a drunk. That'll do, Pig. That'll do. And it's, he's a spaceman. You know, There's definitely some chemistry between her and Picard, and uh, so I think she's got a little sweet tooth for the uh, balding white guys. Older, well, older of- balding white guys. <laughs> I thought about that quite a bit because there's definitely, you're right, there's absolutely chemistry. But And I've been really going through it a lot, thinking about that issue. What kind of chemistry was it? Was it romantic chemistry or was it just they just gelled well? And, and, and I'm not sure. I think it was a little of both. I think if you would have let it go a little, I think if you would have let it go, if, if say like the ship had to leave and she was stuck with Picard, I think she and Picard could have possibly could have possibly hooked up you know yeah she's she is such a good actress oh she's so good she's so cool yes she was i and and uh you know and and her character was a good addition because that gave some that gave somebody for kirk or for kirk for picard to explain to you know so you had the the guy who knew about the borg and then the person who absolutely you know she's representative i guess of just the walk-in the walk-in viewer and I guess she was sort of a ten- tentative link to the events on the ground and the events. See, that's one of my major problems with this movie. If uh, uh, and it's not a major problem, but of my problems, this would be one of the major problems, if to, mm-hmm. to be exact about it, is uh, that there's not really much going on down on Earth. There, you know, I mean, what they have to do is re- there's not there's there's definitely zero. Um, worry about them having the ship up and running because you got Geordi down there. The only right. real conflict you've got is, you know, Zephram Copgram being a, a flaky drunk and, you know, not wanting to live up to his eventual fame. But that really, there isn't a lot of, you know, it, it's it's just sort of there, you know. And he has his one scene where he runs off, but it doesn't really ring like a true... It doesn't really ring like a true scene to me. It doesn't really feel like a real character sort of thing. I, 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 I wish they would have just not even bothered trying to put any conflict in there and just let it, you know, sort of exist for what it was, you know. But, uh, yeah, there, but there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of co- conflict or suspense to, you know, they, they almost give you one point where there's a red warning light or, you know, something could go wrong with the flight, but it's, you know, it's just Cockrum hits the thing and it's, and it's it's sloughed off, so that element of the plot is very is is kind of slim, you know. See, I, I I don't know that I agree. Um, I enjoyed watching. I enjoyed all that part of it because it was all full. It was that was chock full of the fun character moments, you know. The the, the exactly you got to see Deanna get drunk, and she did did a real that uh, uh, that was a really good little scene where she was drunk and just sort of, you know, I'm limbering this guy up, you know, basically, and, <laughs> and telling him, you know, telling him off. It was, it was, it was, you know, and that's, that's what I love about these, these movies is with that ensemble cast and seven seasons behind you, they know, you know, 
they don't have to work to get into their characters and they don't have to work to bounce off each other they can you know they they're so they're so used to their characters that they can take them in any direction and have it just be natural you know Mm-hmm. So, so it, what always ends up in those movies is all the actors who aren't part of the ensemble crew cast always seem a little awkward, you know. Like, um, what's his name? The guy who looked like Chris Pine, Hawk. What's his name? The guy, the guy who right. got absorbed and then sent off into space. Yeah, well, I would call him a a red shirt with a name. Mm-hmm. Really, is kind of what he was. Um, real, real quick, I'm going to address your earlier point though about the the ground and the plot and all that. I, I think it served a couple of purposes. You're right that the whole story going on in the ground was Zephyr and Cochran. All this, all the stuff with the ship and Jordy, that's just a bunch of bullshit. What was really going on was Zephyr and Cochran dealing with his eventual fame, right? And and, and you know that and it becoming a better person. And I I liked watching that develop. I liked watching that unfold. I li- actually liked the scene where he ran off. You know, I I was because you know, I like the idea of him running away and then Riker shooting him. I just I dug that. Just as a, then, yeah, I, well, I like that too. I like that too. Just a, and uh, and he and Cockrum didn't even really. Uh, Cockrum was probably three quarters. Dr- That's the thing about Cockrum in this movie is you could almost do anything to him and he's gonna wake up the next morning and be like, well, "That'll do, pig. That'll do." What happened? You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> And, and you mentioned the comedy, and I think that's very intentional because what's going on on the ship is so is intense. intense. Yeah, you, you cut away to the comedy. You get a little bit of, of a breather. You get a. Whew. So when you go back to the ship, the you get right back into the intenseness because like if the whole film was just intense, it'd be like a, a slasher film. Yeah, where eventually you become yeah. numb to it. But by having little breaks of comedy. Every time you go back to the tension, it's that stressful again. It doesn't get old. You don't get numb to it. I, I think it served its purpose for that quite well. In fact, one of my absolute favorite parts of the movie is the is the Phoenix launch. I love it. Oh yeah. I, well, I love I, stuff I cheer, like I get so I, I find myself kind of rocking like they are, like the ship's taking off. I mean, I absolutely love that scene. Yeah, I I I, I love it too because I'm a sucker for I'm like I feel I really identify with Riker. With the whole like you know, I love those elements of where you know they're meeting they're, they're you know experience his experiencing history they're experiencing something and with their characters this is like a character especially like say Jordy you know this is like this would be like us meeting Einstein you know all of a sudden being hanging out with teenage Einstein or something and just like he's going I'm working on this theory and we'd be like awesome man <laughs> tell us about the theory oh my god you know and so don't it, use don't, don't use F equals MC squared use E just <laughs> yeah. trust us here just take this little line out and oh you know but uh <laughs> yeah add one little line and you're all set but uh you know, I yeah, I enjoy I enjoyed vicariously watching Riker and Jordy, you know, give each other looks as they you know, as they're sitting there going, Oh my god, we are co pilots in the first Now this is where this is I think this is the stuff that pissed off Scott. I don't want to speak for him, but I believe it was the whole you know, character of Zephram Cockrum and and how first contact went down that, that deviates from canon canonical Star Trek storyline and I can understand him being pissed about that I'm more blissfully ignorant of it you know I do I do know what Zephyr and Cockrum was was a totally different character in the original series Metamorphosis 
Right. He was a completely different, you know, he looked different. He wasn't, you know, he just wasn't the same person. He was more of a, a st- he was more of like very, he, he reminded me of Pike a lot. Um, mm. Chris Pike. And okay. not, not, um, not Pike the, um, or Chris Pine, but, but, you know, Christopher Pike. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. very, very sort of disciplined, um, guy maybe even a little military who was you know down down on his luck or you know but but he was not that it was a completely different character and i think you know i think basically you know they they had um cromwell for the you know cromwell at this point i believe was right off of um Oh, what was that movie? It won an Academy Award, though, and I believe he uh, it was L.A. Confidential, maybe? He he had won an Academy Award for Babe. That'll do, Pig. That'll do. Um, or had been nominated for Babe, the pig movie. Mm-hmm. And then L.A. Confidential was, was, I think, yet to come. I don't think this, I don't think L.A. Confidential had done yet. But he was definitely... He was a hot, uh, he was hot property at yes, the time. Was. It was a big when, deal that they had him, so I think, you know... That's why they they changed everything around. You know, um, you know who they actually asked to play? Um, so they wrote it for Cromwell. Do you know who they actually asked to play it? No. Tom Hanks. And everyone agrees that would have been terrible. I don't know about that. No, I. It would have been more consistent with the maybe with the with the um, the TV series Cromwell. Well, Tom Hanks is an excellent actor. You know, he's he can do anything. But, no doubt about that. But at the same time, he would be Tom Hanks in a Star Trek movie, you know? That's that's why they eventually said he wasn't a great fit mm-hmm. because he couldn't do it anyway. He was too busy doing that thing you do. But, um, yeah, I mean, exactly. He's too big a name, you know? I mean, it was it was, it was was weird enough at first. It was lucky, lucky that Guinan was such a good character that actually, mm-hmm. to me, now I think of Guinan when I see Whoopi Goldberg. But at first it was like, oh, they got you know Whoopi Goldberg on the show, you know, and I like Whoopi Goldberg as an actress, and you know, and God knows she could have used good roles at the time, you know, ever, Burglar almost ever wrong. after after. Um, Burglar and Jumpin' Jack Flash wasn't doing it for you. Well, no, I mean, her, she started out so good. She and Oprah, you know, started yeah. out with with that Spielberg movie, and then Color Purple, and then Oprah just sort of gave up act acting for almost except for one other movie and and Whoopi just took any horrible horrid awful script that anybody would just throw her in her direction so um I'm gonna go back to your continuity stuff real quick because I I, because I knew that's an issue with Scott I knew I knew the the continuity issue with Zephyr Cochran is an issue um this is kind of my take on it 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 does contradict continuity there's no denying that but Star Trek has been doing that sort of thing off and on yeah. forever, forever. I mean, the, the biggest one I always point to whenever I have this discussion with somebody is the Klingons. I mean, original series Klingons to even as early as the motion picture. Completely different animal. Completely different. And well, they've since, you know, they've since... They joke around. Figured out how to fix it. Talk it was about no, it. no. It was some, yeah. Well, it was some disease that the Klingons. It was some blah, disease that spread blah, through the Klingons' blah. space herpes or something, and gave them an awful rash on their head it's and pissed them off a even bunch more. Of bullshit retconning nonsense. 
The fact is, someone had a better idea down the line. Someone had a better idea how to handle these characters down the line, and that's what they implemented, and it's better. The Klingon, in my opinion, and you can disagree if you wish, but you'd, you'd be wrong. Oh, they're uh, way the Klingon, more fun like they are. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's the same thing as Efren Cochran. It's, he's a much more interesting character in this role. And, and who's to say that down the line he doesn't become more militant? You know, and become a little more like the Zephyrin Cochran. Obviously, not physically, but become right. a little more like the Zephyrin Cochran in the in the thing. I mean, I guess he does become more preachy, peace kind of guy. But either way, I I think the Zephyrin Cochran's better, and I think it, he added so much to the mythos. I mean, heck, they refer back to Zephyrin Cochran in, in when you watch Enterprise. He's actually in the first episode, uh, just briefly as a cameo, and they refer to him all the time. And um, anyway, I think I think. Did they have Crom? Was it Cromwell? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. He's only in it for a minute or two. That'll do, pig. That'll do. But I think I think it's uh it's one of those continu- continuity issues that you you just kind of accept. Like I said, like the Klingons, even though it's been retconned, and I, I don't, I still say it's a bunch of crap. The retconning, uh, you just say, you know what, someone had a better idea, and it works. You could say that. Well, in. And if you're a fan of the TV shows, if you watch Enterprise, that's full of that kind of shit. Right. Because Enterprise, t- Enterprise takes place before yeah. you know, the original series, and there's a ton of stuff well, in I, there. Well, I remember at the beginning of it, that upset Scott, too, that there were a lot of, there were a lot of like, things that, you know, the timeline was all messed up with Enterprise. Eh, it wasn't all messed up, but it was, it definitely took some liberties. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know, but that, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting it, getting it through Scott, but... Yeah, I yeah. always wonder about that, and and it's funny. Um, I just noticed on the forums today, Scott watched the last two Clone Wars episodes, and mm. a character dies in one of those Clone Wars episodes, and it it ruined it for him because in one of you know in the timeline of Star Wars and in, in some of the subsequent novels, that character's in it, Ooh. and it makes you wonder, you know, if these places are just uh, if Star Trek and Star Wars, if they really. If the, you know, they should have one person. They should just, you know, you could reach into a convention and toss a rock into convention, knock somebody out, and take them back to Star Trek Central or Lucas Ranch, and say your job is to read and consume every bit of Star Wars and Star Trek media and make a comprehensive timeline. You know, <laughs> there would be somebody. You know, they should have somebody who does that, and then. Then when anybody's writing a story, they have that timeline. They can see who's alive, who's dead. You know, you can have a little red line when anybody dies, and then everybody can can keep their shit in one sock. And but I don't, you know, I think you know in the in the you know in the reality of it, you know, there just isn't anybody who does that. And when when they did these movies, they're like, well, this is next generation. Um. Um. You know that you know we we are not going to bind ourselves to old you know the old TV show continuity and nobody's watching that anyway. Well, I don't think it was that blatant. It was it was simply a, a case of like you know it's it's a really minor piece of continuity. It's not like they changed Kirk or Spock or Bones right, with one right, character and, right. they, and they didn't even change what he did. They just changed who he was, his personality. That's really all they did. Well, I think it was... In physicality. To Scott, it was the concept of um, the fact that the the Vulcans sort of found us and helped pull us out of 
you know, pull us into Starfleet and into all that. Whereas, you know, the old the old rule of thumb was that humanity brought itself up. You know, humanity built itself back up from its ashes, and then, you know, once we'd built ourselves up into space and had, you know, fixed up our society on Earth, then Starfleet came a calling. You know. So he, well, you know, it's, it's, it, it's it took a little power out of the the human race, you know, by by having the Vulcans be our sort of our saviors, or or, or you know, well the thing is, it, see, I, I th- all right, when well, we're going to argue this now, because uh, I would say that's not really, and if you watch Enterprise later on too, that's not really how it happens. I mean, the Vulcans didn't save us; all the Vulcans did, they're very, finding out their existence, right caused the human race to gel itself. The Vulcans didn't save us. They didn't come in and give us, you know, medicine to cure cancer. Right. In fact, the Vulcans were stingy pricks. We find out later on they didn't give us jack or shit. Humans had to pull themselves up by their own bootstrings. But the difference was we knew there were aliens out there, so humans came together. Right, And in fact, Starfleet, in the Enterprise, they they established that the humans, we still led the, the charge on forming the Federation and Starfleet. Those didn't exist. Even though the the Vulcans come to us, none of that's in place. We actually well, start- I always I always suspected that because ninety percent of Starfleet is human, you know. That's because we're racist pricks. And yeah, exactly. You see, especially when you get in the higher ups of Star Trek, you know, it's it's all and 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 you know, if they're not humans, they're at least bipeds for the most part. <laughs> yeah, right. Two arms and two legs, you know. But wow. uh, I, I'm gonna say let's take a little break. And uh, uh, Two True Freaks has been getting a lot of promos from people, which we strongly encourage. And anybody else who wants to send us a promo for their podcast, send it because we'll play it. And uh, I'll play a few of those while Shag and I uh, take a little uh, little break. Siesta. Yes, you could call it that. <laughs> <laughs> Deacon of Geek is a podcast for the geek and everyone. Please join your host, Peregrine and D-Man, each week as they discuss all the things that geek guys love to talk about from the sci-fi, fantasy, and comic genres. For movies, TVs, comics, novels, and games, seek out Definitive Geek. Available on iTunes or at DefinitiveGeek.Podomatic.com. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you. Yes, you, hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Yappa, Yangari, and Giyawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school at Earth Destruction Directive 
www.blogspot.com. Check it out, won't you? And remember, the EDD has got their eyes on you. You, 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 you. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. Hey, kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, No, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics. And then we talk about them. Because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then... We sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Hey, kids, comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. All right, we are back. You know, I was thinking during the break, there, there's something yeah. that a, a buddy of mine said about continuity, which I've always found interesting. His name's Ravenface. And. He's always looked at continuity between Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, and he's got an interesting take on it in that Star Wars fans, when it comes to continuity, just like you guys said, that they want a continuity cop. They want someone to make sure every character fits, whether it's EU or canon or film or animated, whatever. They want to make sure everything fits. Whereas Star Trek fans actually, believe it or not, they have a bad rap, but... They're they're a lot more accepting. I mean, they've had to put up with a lot more garbage well, over the years. They might be more inured towards it, is what what you might really be saying. Well, <laughs> they may well, have was, just gone to the you know they might have gone through the stages of t- denial till they reached acceptance. You know, it, that could be it too. That could very well be it. But I mean, there's there's so much stuff that Star Trek fans are able to. And I'm impressed. I think Star Trek fans could take a take a, a play you know a, a note out of their play out of the Star Wars fans or. I'm getting myself all mixed up. Either way, Star Trek fans have it right. They they just ignore the shit they don't like. Like, you know, you've got the main line of, of Star Trek, the original series, and the movies, and the next gen. And then, you know, over here in the corner, Bill Shatner's writing a series of, you know, whatever books about the further adventures of reincarnated Kirk. Kirk right. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it, if fans don't want to read it, they just, eh, you know what, that's not there. You know, the animated series, yeah. I don't care about that. They just ignore it. Or, I don't know, the plate collections or, you know, or whatever. There's just all kinds of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there. The Star Trek fans have just had the, the wherewithal to just tune out and say, you know what, I don't really care about that that much. And they do a really good job at it. So, you know, when it comes to the Zephyr Cochran stuff and it comes to the Klingon stuff, I have my hats off to the Star Trek fans for being able to cope with that, those continuity changes. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm okay with it. Well, you know, I mean, we'll see. The, the thing about Star Wars is there's just a lot less of Star Wars at this point than Star Trek. Absolutely true. But they're catching up. They're starting to make a TV show if the, if the legendary 
live action TV, you know, rumored live action TV show ever makes up that, you know, maybe the Star Wars fans will will to become a nerd of it or <laughs> or 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 whatever but you know yeah until uh, until uh, i think they're just they're just fresher you know they're just you know maybe i don't know if the star trek fans in the early days were that nitpicky on i'm um, what am i saying <laughs> I, I think early on yeah because when i worked in, i worked in a managed a comic book store in 91 uh through 96 and like the star trek technical manuals and stuff that we mm-hmm. sold there were some pretty hardcore Trek fans coming yeah. in there. <laughs> I remember one girl, no shit, having a breakdown in the store, literally crying. I'm not kidding. Because, and this is before generations, because she could not find information on how to land the saucer section in an emergency. Now, ironically, years later, she's right. Apparently, there is no procedure for landing the saucer section emergency. It just fucking crashes. Yeah. But, um, it's just... You, you should have said, just gone over and said, look, you have 300, 400 years to worry about that. You know? That's right. <laughs> Come on. <Yeah. laughs> anyway. Let's Don't talk about some... Any... Let's talk about some music. Oh, well, I think one of the things that, that, that made this more this movie more cinematic was the music. I really like the music in this. It it it, it really keeps things moving. Jerry Goldsmith, you know. Yeah, oh, he's so good. And now, you know he you know he 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 didn't do all the movies. I just assumed he's done all these all the films. No. I didn't realize. Yeah, he just did um motion picture um was it Final Frontier and this one. Mhm. And and you know, having having him in charge is, you know, that's like having you know, that's the A a grade gold standard Star Trek composer that you could. I mean, actually, Alexander Courage was still alive at that point, but you know, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, it, it it adds a lot to this movie. I really noticed it when they were out on the surface of the Enterprise fighting the Borg that were setting up their transmitter thingy. Uh-huh. Uh, that's when that's when I really like felt Jerry Goldsmith's music the most it, uh, for some reason the, the the that scene really was i felt was just scored beautifully yeah. and put it into you know it, it, a, a lot of the stuff that would have looked that looked made for tv gets you know an extra sheen on it when you put that cinematic you know full orchestral score to it you know even though the tv show is pretty nicely scored it's got a you know, a lot more feel for it in the in the movie. I'm, one of my bits, favorite bits in the movie, is the scenes where they're sort of hunting the Borg through the ship, and there's the two d- different parties. There's the party with Picard go, marching through the the corridors, and there's the party with Worf marching through the corridors. Yeah, and the music keeps changing back and forth. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's so powerful. It's so well done. And it, it, I mean, some people might feel like it was a little heavy handed. I don't know. I didn't think it was. I thought it really made those scenes. Nope, and then. The- Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and also the usage of the Klingon theme quite a bit when they'd be dealing with a wharf issue. You'd yes. hear the Klingon theme. Dun, 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 That's a terrible rendition. But anyway, uh, just really, really great stuff. Okay, so I have a question about Worf in this. So uh-huh. somewhere in the TV show, Worf got his own ship, I'm assuming. And that was what was, you know, when they, when they catch up with Worf, he's the commander of his ship. It was interesting you mentioned that. Uh, this, this movie was came out in November 1996, and it's actually it, it, watching it out of out of out of perspective here. I had forgotten 
this movie came out while there were two Star Trek television series on television at the time. Right. Deep Space Nine and Voyager were both on the air when this show came out, when this movie came out. And at the time, Worf, uh, Michael Dorn had joined the cast of Deep Space Nine somewhere, oh, you know, I'm not even going to say the season number because somebody will write a nasty letter. Um, Michael Dorn joined the cast of Deep Space Nine. Right. And to sort of, once Next Gen was canceled, they felt like they still needed someone to boldly go, if you will. Right. And so they, they gave Deep Space Nine a ship. They gave him this, this, this experimental ship called the Defiant, which was this badass, I mean, it was a warship, is what it boiled down to. And Worf was often uh, the one in charge on missions in the ship. You know, it really it kind of depends. Well, Cisco was. I I, I may I, I noticed they made very sure to mention that his ship wasn't destroyed. Exactly. You know, they made so I was like, okay, that ship's an important. That ship's going to. You know, they need that ship for the TV show. But yep. okay, so okay, so then, but Worf. Okay, uh, you know, so okay, the the machinery of the script gets Worf back on the Enterprise now. Exactly. You know. That that brings two scenes up. The the one scene where Picard and Worf face off didn't ring entirely true. It was a really intense scene. Oh, I love that scene. Was was didn't ring true to you? What? But what? What got me was when it was time to self destruct the ship. All of a sudden, Worf is given the codes too. Well, he's they, still an officer. He was still an officer on the Enterprise. Well, I mean, he's still an officer in Starfleet. Oh, okay, so I guess it, it doesn't. Ta- it takes a Starfleet. O- okay, okay. That, that, <laughs> you know that's what? acceptable to me. I was just like, did they, did they, you know, did I miss the scene? Did they just gloss over the scene where they put Worf's voice back in and said, okay, he's back to this, this job on the ship because you know he falls right back into being, you know. You know, being being Worf, which must kind of suck for a Klingon after having your own sort of, de- you know, having yeah. your own sort of deal, and then all of a sudden have the old boss bossing you around again. Well, I think he respected the old boss enough that he's okay. Yeah. But I felt bad up was, until that one scene. <laughs> well, yeah, I felt bad for whoever was on tactical up to that point because you know what, I, what like I knew, I remember the scene where Picard goes, you know, we could use your help on tactical. You know, I remember that. And so going into watching the film again, I was expecting one of those moments where, you know, a console explodes and some guy goes flying through the air. Yep. I was expecting, like, the tactical officer to die right before then. He doesn't. He just basically got fired. Yep. <laughs> what just happened. We could use some help on tactical. And he got bob. deckered. They call that, they call that in yeah. Starfleet being deckered. <laughs> he got deckered. So, yeah. you know, Bob, Bob, Bob a.k.a. The, the decker in this scenario, is over there going... What do you mean we need help on t- tactical? What the fuck? What did I do wrong? <laughs> Shit! I ain't arguing with the Klingon though. <laughs> yeah. So you, so he then gets busted to you know EXO and then science officer. And now then all my equipment go. smells like Klingon. Oh shit! Damn. That's not me, man. That's from the original series, man. The Klingon smell was mentioned. Yeah. Constantly. All right, Maybe that was the- just prejudice back in those days, but. <laughs> Back, back on the music, you know, actually Jerry Goldsmith got some help this time uh, from Joel Goldsmith, his son. Oh. He, yeah, he actually got his son, and, and his son did something like uh, 22 minutes of the soundtrack as his, uh, which is pretty cool. He had to kind of prove himself to the producers, but Joel came in and did that and helped out. And then... Um, well, it's seamless. Oh, yeah. Now, if you step away from the Goldsmith stuff, you get two... Rock and yeah. roll songs in there, basically. You get Magic Carpet Ride by Steppenwolf, and you get Ooby Dooby by Roy Orbison. Right. Now, okay, were you, so, now, were you now, trashing them earlier? I don't remember. As a, as a rock and roll, well, 
Um, Magic Carpet Ride, they did an okay job of recreating. You know, it's one of those copyright deals where it's slightly cheaper to get the copyright of some of, you know, a hired studio band doing Magic Carpet Ride. Oh, they were the, covers. They, they were both covers, and Ubi Doobie wasn't as much of a Roy Orbison. I don't know. I'll have to check it, but they, to, to my rock and roll ear, they said they had that. Uh, Ubi Doobie especially seemed to be more of a recreation of the Credence version of Ubi Doobie. Where, huh. where they tried to recreate the the Credence version with somebody who was singing a little more like Roy Orbison, but it was somewhere between Credence and Roy Orbison. Now I could be totally wrong, and they use the original versions, but they, you know I have a pretty good ear for for that. I now, now that now that the, didn't the, bother me. The sh- well, hold on. The, the soundtrack I'm holding it in my hands. Ah, it yes. actually it actually says Magic Carpet Ride performed by Steppenwolf and Ubi Doobie performed by Roy Orbison. Then I'm wrong. I will admit it, because I'm a big man. Somebody write that down. <laughs> it's on tape. It's <laughs> sitting on the internet forever. I, you know, I don't care. But uh, that that aside, I'm never. I am never a. Fa- I am a rock and roll fan. I'm never a fan of. It was just the same as hearing the Beastie Boys in the in the the remake. It always it always rankles me. A little bit because I also think I like the fact that okay classic rock and roll is classic rock and roll but you'd think in the hundreds of years or you know or or the time period between when Ubi Doobie and Magic the 60s and this time there might be some other rock and roll songs too that are on that jukebox you know and and James Cromwell is a proper British actor. Or is he American and he just plays British? He's British and has played American roles, I believe. You know, I don't know. He's so good. He's he's so good, I don't know. He's so good at at his accents and stuff. But, you know, the whole... It's it's something... It's this phenomena started in the 80s with teen movies and then spread into stuff. The rockin' out scene where... In the you know, and this this has this has a couple of them. You know, this has the one with, where Troy's drunk, and you know he's rocking those, out. Those are funny though. Those aren't like back They're, to the future. Back to the future. If you, you know. say so. <laughs> when, when, he, when he's dancing around and Troy passes out, the the moment Troy passes out, by the way, and her head hits the table and Riker looks over to that's like one of my favorite moments of that, the entire. I, film. I like it's that because so of her well drunken performance. Um, yeah. But you know, the, just the you know, and the whole like, I I hate the 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 whole thing where okay, they've met aliens for the first time, mm-hmm. and what is Cromwell doing? He's drunk and he's like, let's rock out to this music, and the, as the Vulcans sit there uncomfortably, and I know it's sort of a laugh moment, and it's sort of a like, yeah. hey, look, but it, it, that sort of says to me. Look at the humans. <laughs> what a <laughs> bunch of ingrates. Hey, Vulcans, you know. Wouldn't they be in... I know why the Vulcans didn't give us security cancer. If, exactly. If, if the aliens came down, I mean, outside of a cheesy movie like, what's that, you know, Paul or whatever, if the <laughs> aliens actually came down and a group of, of us citizens went up to greet them, do you think it would be like, hey, come on, let's, this is a jukebox. 
this is what humans use to rock out. No, that's what that happens in movies, you know. Now we rock out, and the Vulcans sit there and pull. You know, it, it, at least, at least they didn't go so far to have the Vulcans like go. Oh, maybe we'll let's awkwardly try to dance too in the spirit of, <laughs> of relations, or or try to awkwardly nod their heads or anything. No, they just sit there and look at each other like Jesus Christ. It's you know. <laughs> He throws back that shot, though. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. well, the Vulcans are no... Yeah, the Vulcans are, you know... It's like priests, you know? Everybody thinks, you know, oh, uh, the drinking is below a lot of... Uh, no, 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 those, you know... Just because they don't have emotions doesn't mean they don't like to get their drunk on or, you know, right. have a nice Absolutely. shot of... And, and I mean, you know, sharing sharing sustenance or intoxicants seems to be, at least in humans, but I would imagine in life forms maybe you know that sort of seems to be a common sort of bond you know let's break bre- let's eat of each other's food and stuff and and avail ourselves of each other's women and and but you know and 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 you know uh, if music is presented okay? it would be like <laughs> sort of like you know hey look here we have the Vienna's boys choir and some dancers and stuff not like I, I know they're in po- post-apocalypse world, but yeah, that that, that that that's just a personal thing. That 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 transcends Star Trek and goes into all movies. The the rock out scene, yeah, just drives me nuts. At least there was no montage of them fixing the ship with Ubi Dooby playing <laughs> or something like that, which there very well could have been. You know, it, well, you know, maybe was, if they, especially was, if they made it today. I always think of the A-Team Cabbage Shooter as one of, I think, a musical montages from the 80s. <laughs> but All right, and here's here's another here's another thing that... Uh, and, and you've got this on your notes, and I've got this sort of something to expand on it, and that's about the um, using the holodeck to, to kill the Borg. Now, you and Scott had a very long conversation about this mm-hmm. on, a, on a Star Trek Monthly Monday. I don't know how long ago it was. But so I, I can't articulate this as well as you guys did, but I knew it was a hot button for you guys, so I want to be sure we hit on it. Obviously, well, there's a lot of strong feelings about whether a holodeck could kill or not. Right. I mean, I mean, it. The, you know, they, they they play up how safe the holodeck is, but when it becomes a point of necessity, all of a sudden they can override. You know, I mean. A, the whole, you know, well, I just overrode the emergency stuff. Well, you did it pretty quickly, Picard, and pretty easily. You right. know, it shouldn't, it, that shouldn't be something you should even be able to do, you know. You should be able to do it, but not be like, it shouldn't be an on-off switch, you know what I'm saying? On top of that. And, but that, but that's not as big of an issue to me. I'll, I'll go with it, whatever. Although I don't know why they didn't make their base of command in the holodeck. And turn the holodeck into an armory. Yeah, you know that's I, I I wonder about that. But um, I this is this is what makes me wonder if if um okay we've been fighting the Borg for a while now and we know about the Borg and etc cetera, etc cetera, and we know that they adapt to energy weapons quickly to the wavelength of energy weapons and can inure themselves to it. So why don't you keep some good old fashioned projectile weapons on hand? For in case you have to fight some Borg, especially since they're the big bad enemy, why not have some actual guns? 
on on your ship in case of in case of Borg because you can't you can't negate a flying bullet, you know? You can't Sure like, you can. I mean, yeah, by being right, bulletproof well, you can. Well, I'll play the uh the geek um, you know, retcon person here. But think about it. The the ship has multiple shields. They've got regular uh shields, then they've got their navigational shields. Okay. The navigational shields are to block space debris, shit like that, so you know a piece of dust doesn't go through the ship and, and you know hull the whole ship because they're going too fast and a piece of cosmic dust flies right through them. So they've got the two different shields. They've got the regular energy shields, which blocks blast, but then they've got the navigational shields, which block physical objects. Okay. Well, who's, to, who's to say the board couldn't have some sort of physical object you know, that, that well, given time they adapt just like they do to everything and they would have a physical shield? Okay, actually, but once, now, they had their, I, once they had their physical shield, then you could shoot them with the ray guns again. Well, and now I think about it, then they wouldn't be able to hand-to-hand combat them as well as they do. Huh. So, so yeah, yeah. I, I would have... I, uh, how about this? Spears! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Or something, something like that. I mean, um... Yeah, I, that 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 was just that was just a thought because you know the 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 holodeck seemed to you know just punch punch holes in them real good, real pretty like, and I also wonder a lot about the Borg Queen and the exist the existence of the Borg Queen. To me, she was, and I'm I'm a person I'm fascinated with hive mentality. I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by ants. My my college script. I wrote a script in college about um, uh, a drug that that gets that the, the a crazy person you know gets a hold of that actually combines human consciousness. Hmm. So I was doing a lot of study on that stuff, and the Borg Queen just doesn't strike me. You know, I think you know they came into a problem where they needed something to personify the Borg. And tried to figure out, and they and they tried to cover their little tracks with with her saying vague things like, you know, I am the Borg, you know, and and all that. But she just seemed quite um, independent, you know. She seemed to have her own her own, you know, individual consciousness. Oh in, yeah, in a way which I mean, she... d- didn't make sense to me. She, you can argue that one a lot of different ways. There's, there's no denying that. She, it, I love the character. Let me say that, mm-hmm. though. Mm-hmm. I love the character. But I agree. You know, she's a huge contradiction. If the Borgs are collective, why do you have an individual? If she is the collective, if literally they are linked to her entirely, why are their personalities so different than hers? They would right. just emulate her. Right. Um, there's all kinds of, you know. So is it that she is just... You know, she. she she's I almost the inti- pictured her like a queen bee or something. Maybe they were trying to think of that. Maybe she was the or, the the starting place. So she was kind of like maybe maybe a central hub for the consciousness, the hive. Yeah. Consciousness it, it almost seems like she must have been. Yeah, but, like a, they 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 obeyed her whims, and, and it's it would it would make it also a huge contradiction in that it's a big collective. And you know it's supposed to be everyone's equal, and yet it's all being all the strings are being pulled by this one individual. Well, and at the same time, the one individual, the one individual who is the central, the the central Borg, is also on this 
ex, you know, it, when you're, you know, when you're a queen bee or a queen ant, where are you? You're buried in the bottom of the hive. You're once you kill all the rest of the ants, you come to the queen. You know, yeah. All the rest of them are going to to surround and protect the queen. Why would she be on this mission? And then they had the whole thing of like they had to contact the rest of the Borg. So as a you know how how does that work if they're a hive consciousness do the does the hive break up as if they get far enough apart from each other that they can't you know who is she, if if yes, she is the, the Borg who did, is she who who do they have to communicate with distance actually is an issue uh, I do remember they they I think want to say they dealt with that in the series was that you know if a Borg ship is far enough away from the others, it can't communicate with it. It's just, there's a long range communication issue. Then the, but, then, then it's a, then it's becomes its own separate consciousness at that yeah, point. Yeah. It becomes auton- autonomous at that point. Yes. Yeah. Now they also addressed the queen in the Voyager series. Cause she came back in Voyager and I can't remember the details. That poor actress. Wa- no, it wasn't the same actress. Oh, well, um, still whatever actress that makeup looked like it was, uh, painful uh a long check, and painful process check this out it was the the board queen in in this film first contact was played by alice krieg i think is how you say her name she you're absolutely right she was extremely uncomfortable her costume was too tight it would cause blisters and the silver contacts that she wore i don't know if you could tell her contacts were silver she could only keep them in for four minutes at a oh, time jesus yeah I mean, she was all, all seven kinds of uncomfortable. Poor girl. Uh, real quick on the on the Borg makeup, since we're on this sort of tangent. Uh, interesting. The original during the the TV series, the Borg looked even cheesier. If you want, I mean, you mentioned right. some of their shoes looking bad. They looked pretty bad in the TV series initially. Um, the makeup for a Borg took about an hour for the TV series. For the film, it took five hours. They yeah. re-engineered the Borg tremendously so that. They made it look like, and I think they did a good job. I think the Borgs, other than their feet, which probably weren't designed for close-ups in the movie anyway. They look like moon boots. Right. But other than the feet, I think the Borgs look great in this movie. But they were redesigned to look as if the people were being converted from the inside out. Yes, yes. Which is where the old Borg, it was more of a, you know, two attachments to your body. This way they were trying to make them look converted from the inside out, which I thought was really cool. So that was neat. But it took the makeup time from one hour to five hours to do it. Yeah, that's the movies for you, for yous. Yeah, well, the Borg Queen was definitely interesting. You you could definitely argue, you know, if she maybe she exists on every ship. You know, if yeah. she's one hive mentality, maybe that wasn't really her body. That was just uh, a host, like like it was a dummy terminal. Well, you got, you got the idea that even though she got wiped out in in this, you know, I mean. If she'd truly been the queen of the Borg, then that probably should have been the end of the Borg at that point, which it obviously is not. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, they mentioned that because Picard even said she was on the poor cube in the next generation, the 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 best of both worlds, where he became Locutus. He's like, you were there. How did you get out? How did you survive? That cube was destroyed. And she said, I am the Borg or whatever. Uh, so I guess okay. that means she does sort of exist simultaneously on every yeah, ship. Yeah, she can just build herself a new body somewhere and, yeah. or, you know, head and, head and spinal column. <laughs> that was a pretty cool scene, especially yes. for 96, with, the, with yes. the head and spinal column coming in and linking in with the body. I had, to be, I, had to, I had to take into account that it was 1996 because, like, 
definitely the Enterprise and you know the the, the scenes of the Enterprise in space. Mm-hmm. The Enterprise looks neat. It still looks you know computer graphics were were you know I mean it was state of the art then, but it it doesn't look as it looks it looks a little can now. It doesn't have that realistic feel of a real model at, at at that point. Although I'm sure there were I'm sure they were using real models in the part, but there there seemed to be good chunks of it that were computer generated. And, they did both. You're right. They did both. This was and, the first time they used some full CGI ships. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think they were quite ready for it at this point. It still looks it still looks neat. I still like the way I like the way that Enterprise looks. I like the interior of that Enterprise. I like the color scheme a lot better than uh, the the other next generation Naga Hide sort of look that they had before. <laughs> this one has a lot more like brown earth tony sort of colors in it and, uh, and blues and stuff yes, yeah and i and i like it it looks a lot better uh, i i mean generally you know all the costume design and every everything looks you know taken up a couple uh, a couple notches for sure well, let's take a minute to talk about the ships because i want that's one of the things i want to talk about um this enterprise is the sovereign class and it's you know ncc 1701e i'll be honest it's not my favorite ship um, it's. I think it's probably a step up from the D model, one from the Next uh-huh. Generation series, which is probably blasphemy to the diehard fans. I know a lot of people love the D um, design. I, honestly, my favorite design is uh, Enterprise A and Enterprise C. Um, Enterprise A, obviously, being the movie Enterprise, that's right. just classically gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And then Enterprise C, which has only been seen a couple times, it's a really nice amalgamation of Enterprise A and Enterprise D. Yes. So it's that's that's my other favorite ship. But yeah, I totally agree about the insides. Absolutely looked really nice. Um, for this film, also in the space battle, they, they created some new ships for the Federation. They created um, an Akira class, a, a Saber class, and a Steamrunner class. And then they did another one called the Norway class, but that was just based on Voyager. So they did. Um, if you're if you're a ship freak, and I'm a bit of one, I just love the ship of the line stuff. Uh, the Akira, Saber, and Steamrunner. This was their first appearance as they created them for the film. Now the Borg cube was interesting because this is the first time we saw a Borg sphere. Yes. And like for the longest time, I was really bugged by that. It's like, kind of, what was the purpose of that? Like. How's the sphere inside the square? And then, I always like, looked at it as was like the 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 cube was for a primary, um, you know, the cube was doing its primary um, action, which was trying to destroy Earth. And once the cube was destroyed, it w- it's almost like a life ship, or it was uh, almost like okay, yeah. Plan B, you know. And they had that just sitting in there waiting to go, you know. So as soon as the ship started blowing up. They said, "All right, so it's time to try the little harder approach, which is the time travel approach." So that's that's what I that's what I took from it is it was is it was almost like an escape craft, and I think they just made it a sphere, just so it looked different, just so it didn't yeah. look like a smaller cube coming out of a bigger cube, which I don't think would have been as visually appealing. Yeah, and, and you know it's worth mentioning the battle itself was kind of cool and like. We always want to see the battle at Wolf Three Five Nine, which you'll find out about later. But that's that's from the best of both worlds. Well, this and we was saw like, this was like a, yeah, Star. This was like one of the first like Star Wars style battles in Star Trek. You know, yep. Of, 
we the, the closest we probably ever saw to this was the, the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine, which was shown in flashbacks in the in the series opener of Deep Space Nine. But still, this was just this was far and away the, the probably the mo- one of the most exciting space battles we'd seen at least up until the two thousand nine reboot movie. It was just really cool. Lots of ships everywhere. I love like the Enterprise cutting in between the Defiant and the Cube. I mean, it was just totally badass. Yeah, really yes, neat stuff. Now, the only other ship I, I could I think we're talking about is the Phoenix itself. I I absolutely love when the missile shoots off its panels and inside is those really classic. Yeah, I mean, did, did you notice the tips are are doing the little blinky? Oh yeah, rotation things just like the original show. Oh yeah, it's I love it, that. It, yeah, that was that was a big moment in the theater. I remember too, you know. Yeah, and I love I love stuff. I love that you know level of design. And Star Trek and Star Wars are both very good on it. Where where you know within within the series you see how their te- how technology is developed because you see similar you know things and see them evolve. And the nacelles are like yeah they're the they're they're almost. You know, they they just stand for a, a Starfleet ship. So, but but at the same time, it was on. I had forgotten all about it when I saw it again. I was just like, oh yeah, and yeah, <laughs> and that 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 is really cool. And total, I love total. any scene of a rocket type rocket ship taking off. I love. I've always wanted to be, you know, thrown on top of a rocket and blasted out into space. So anytime you see a nice first person perspective of it, I love it. And this has. This is great, you know, and and it's great in Star Trek to actually see an old school, you know, everything's shaking apart inside, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Cockrum's, you know, doing the Millennium Falcon thing where he's, you know, knocking on the wall to to sh- to fix shorted out lights and, and stuff <laughs> like that. So yeah, that's that 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 part is just is just awesome. Yeah, it could have. I, and I love how they see. I love when he sees the Enterprise, when Cockrum sees the Enterprise, and just like flips. I love the shot of the Enterprise through the telescope. Oh, through That's, the telescope? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like, like the- when they. I like when they see it in space. But that scene in the telescope reminds me of the the original series where they went back in time, and they were flying above America over the the um, um, Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. You see the Enterprise from the. It's like the only time you see the Enterprise from that perspective in the TV show, and it reminded me of that. You know, seeing it from just a distance as a tiny little ship. You know, just flying and I. I love that. Okay, I love I, that I, scene. I kind of like the the beauty of the the other scene where they're in space and he sees it and you, and it's like the the Enterprise is coming out of the sun. Kind of, it's just like whoa. Yeah. And that's, that's funny because they're like, "Hey, they're they're probably just here to see us off." <laughs> it's like, no, they're fighting for their lives. <laughs> Arm the quantum torpedoes, yeah, whatever a, that means. Yeah, it's as a, a new matter of fact, that's actually badass. that's right. They were actually getting ready to blast them into into nothingness. Right, the, but I just love how they of, they had to ramp it up and say, you know, these aren't proton torpedoes; these are quantum torpedoes. Yeah, it's just a cooler sounding word. They don't only kill you; they put you into a timeless state that you'll never come out of. But um, uh, um, that just reminded me, I don't know why randomly, of another piece of humor that I didn't think worked is the, the name dropping of Star Trek in it. Of oh, dropping that felt Star flat. Trek. That was forced, I thought. Absolutely. I just, I just didn't need that at all. It's, it, that, that stuff, to me, 
that stuff to me is like they're offering something to fans that the fans don't really want, you know? And and the ones who do want it, I want to sort of like take them aside and go, I'm going to tell you how stories work. <laughs> you know? So you can be interested in those from now on. Yeah, I, I wasn't waiting 30 years for an explanation of why for someone the to say Star that. Trek. Yeah, for exactly. someone to utter the word Star Trek. You know, it it just what. But I think that stuff might work better for. You know, I forget that there's people who just don't watch Star Trek on TV, but might go see a Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. It's so weird to me. I don't understand it, but I know that there's a lot of them, and so yeah. maybe that works for them. You know. I don't know. I just then again, I never. I I no, I did watch the Brady Bunch. It's like whenever they say Doctor Who in in Doctor Who, you know, whenever they're like Doctor Who, and it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. you didn't have you didn't have to go there. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about the other series. Uh, one of the things I forgot to mention was, you know, as we said, DS Nine and Voyager were on the air at the time. A couple things sort of came out of this. They got brand new uniforms in this movie. They got those uniforms with kind of the blue-gray tops with a black bodysuit. Yeah. Which I think are really, really nice-looking uniforms. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, you know, just like the ship, that somebody really, really fixed a lot of the horrible-looking set design and costuming for the movie. So, you know, I think maybe it was, maybe the, the maybe the, it, maybe it was just the people who were working, you know, for Star Trek originally got more money to spend on it and could buy, you know, better looking materials. But yeah, it definitely like, yeah, the, the, the costumes look the, 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 this might actually be one of the first Star Trek movies where they look actually functional. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. They, they're definitely functional and usable. And, and it's just interesting because what they did was they then with the two TV series on, they had, they had to incorporate the same new costumes into the TV series. So they had to sort of roll those new uniforms into next. I'm sorry, into DS9 and Voyager. Or actually, I guess they didn't roll them into Voyager. I take that back. I'm sorry. Voyager, they wore the same clothes for you know seven years. They just you know washed them once in a while. <laughs> exactly. Because um, well, they were that, lost at, to the that, other side at of the that galaxy. Point, you know, they they were pro- you know as I mean, it's a, just a rule of Star Trek. The longer Star Trek exists, the le- you know the more its budget is pinched. You know, and yeah. by that time, you know they'd probably go for more money, and they'd be like. What the hell? It's been on for how many Star Trek shows have there been? Just you know, there's got to be boatloads of those. Just have them, have them spray paint them up and put them back on. There you go. Well, the DS9 folks got the new uniforms. I'm pretty sure if I'm if I'm if I'm recalling correctly. And then also um, worth talking about are the cameos. There were a few cameo appearances in the film. Um, you've from DS9. Obviously, Worf was there, but more so from Voyager, you had. The EMH, the Emergency Medical Holographic which a, Program, which was a big moment in the movie theater that I didn't get at the time. I've oh seen my gosh. parts of Voyager now, so I am familiar with that character now. But you know, when that happened in the movie, I was just like, "This must be from one of the TV shows," because I have no idea why everybody thinks this is so cool. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Same thing in my theater, and people just went ape shit because they the, that character was really really popular the doctor as they called him uh-huh. uh, it was very very popular and, and then it's you, a great idea for a character you know it's a it's and it's a great star trek idea on top of it you know so yeah he's a natural yep and then the maitre d in uh in in the dixon hill 
um, bar where you know they, they go. He goes in there uh-huh. with Alfred Water in the 1940s thing. The Major D is actually the guy who played Neelix on Voyager as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah the guy from Benson. <laughs> the other, oh, actually, the other. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other guy from Benson, I should say. Because <laughs> Rene Abergeon Wall was also in Benson. And <laughs> wasn't Robert Guillaume in Star Trek at some point? Anyway. I think he was. I think he was. If or, he wasn't, he, sh- he should have been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, so, uh, I mean, you that, know, I wanted to say, I was, I was just a few seconds from saying the same thing. So that just tells me that he probably was, you know. Yeah. So that was just kind of a neat, you know, just things they had to either bring over or deal with. I mean, there was also other cameos, like Nurse Ogawa showed up. She was in the the Next Gen episodes quite a bit, and she had a cameo. But that's not a cameo from another series, so that's not as, right. as big a deal. Um, you know, one of the things, i, I got to mention this. We, 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 I've mentioned, I meant to bring it up earlier. We're talking about the Borg. You know, one of the things I thought was really cool in this one was they acknowledged that other races could be Borgs. Like, yes. We got to see a Klingon Borg. We'd never seen that before. That was I remember in the theater too, like when they showed him, everyone's like staring and staring and staring, and finally it registered that the head ridge and he's a Klingon, everyone's just like, Oh shit! Well Oh I, man, it's on now. That <laughs> that also made me wonder though, if the Borg have been around for all these years absorbing the universe, why were why were all the Borg bipedal to, you know, why weren't there any, like, you know, I mean, that really, I don't know what other aliens Paramount owns the copyright to off the top of my head, uh-huh. but, you know, I mean, you could have had a Ridley Scott alien Borg for that, <laughs> you could have had an E.T. as a Borg, you know, you could have had, or or just, you could have had tentacle creatures, you know, I, 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 I wondered why there weren't other forms you know like a unicorn borg or whatever you know or <laughs> from the planet of intelligent unicorns or a cthulhu looking you know what i mean or you know some some um reptilian borgs and gray borgs and you know like you know it's true it's true we could have had a gorn borg but a i mean gorn borg if, if you follow <laughs> is that like beyond borg no, uh, it just sounds the two names go so yeah. good together. It, oh my god, you're right. It it would be a tennis player. Exactly. A tennis <laughs> playing Borg. Now, if you follow total geekism, if you follow the theory of oh jeez, oh god, I remember the term was it Now, Gatt you know, or? instead of having some majestic, you know, poster of 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 first contact for the picture for the show, you know it's going to be a Borg. Gorn with a tennis racket in his hand or something the, stupid the Gorn, like that. The Gorn Borg. Gorn Borg. Awesome. <laughs> but there's there, there's that theory from original series track, which was picked up later in Next Gen, which you probably haven't seen yet, but about that race of people that went around seeding planets, which explains why there's you know everyone so looks many humanoid. human like okay. It's either the gatherers, the progenitors, or the primes, or some damn thing I can't remember, but there was there you know there's this theory that there's a race that went around seeding planets and that's why everyone looks that way. Well, you know I guess you could follow that logic with the Borg and then maybe they get sort of Dalek uh, dialect from Doctor Who and get all superior like and say you know anyone who's not a bipedal you know humanoid looking person they just eliminate them. Yeah, they take their they technology get, and eliminate them. Or maybe they get all the crappy jobs and they don't get to play in the spaceships. Maybe they send <laughs> the humanoids because they. <laughs> Are better equipped for space travel or something. There's got to, there could be a retcon <laughs> reason for it, but they're cleaning the Borg shitters. 
That's right. You see, you see, see, nowadays that would be, you know, that would be more possible with computer-generated effects because you could actually, you know, you wouldn't have to go to all the budgetary stuff to 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 put in a Borg Gorn or a Borg (laughs) ET. I just want to see a Borg ET. How awesome would that be? Just a. you know, an ET with all, well, just like he was at the end of the movie. You know, with all the life drained out of him, and right, <laughs> poor little, poor little guy, and then Elliot shambling on next to him, right? <laughs> be like, you will be assimilated. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, there was there was what ET went back to visit Elliot and took him for a ride, and as they were flying around, they got they got captured by a Borg ship. And for the last 400 years, Elliot's been shambling around, yeah, assimilating people. Awesome. Aww. There it is. There's, there's your fanfic of the girls. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that 90% of, nine, to 99% of fan fiction due to first contact stars the Borg Queen and Data. That's all I got to say. That's a pretty safe bet. Pretty safe bet. <laughs> <laughs> um... The, the, the overall, just this movie, I think, did a really good job of mixing action, humor, drama. I mean, we didn't even touch on the scenes. I barely mentioned the, like, the Moby Dick Ahab scenes with Picard. That's where most people like spend their critical analysis of the film is talking about that stuff. But um, yeah, hey, you don't like it? <laughs> Snobs. So <we> got, oh yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Borg Gorns more. That's right. <laughs> and drunk Klingons. Exactly. Drunk uh, Vulcans. I, I think it was a good mix of everything. I, I really dug all that. I thought it was really well put together as a film. And, it, and God, I mean, just so good. So did you think when, uh, the first time you saw it, when he activated the self-destruct, did you think they were actually going to blow up the ship? Yes. It, you know, because at that point, I'd also thought, you know, I mean, there's a thing with Star Trek... Where, you know, and I got, and, and, you know, this is having not, you know, just from Next Generation movies and the original series, where I always got the feeling that Star Trek tried to avoid time travel, but would sometimes whip it out in, in, like, for movies and, you know, because to me, time travel, especially for the Enterprise, has become almost routine. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you want to time travel, uh, the, the thing is, the, the, the thing about time travel is it's like the new, the, it's like, you know, atomic weaponry. It's, it's once the genie's out of the bottle, it's out of the bottle. So once, once back in the original series, the Enterprise figured out how to time travel and did it several times. And, you know, not mentioning how many times they've done it in, in the, in books and comics and, and that they've discovered the um, Guardian of Forever. Yep. You know, and, and have had time to study the Guardian Forever. You would think that time travel, you know, would be A, horribly off, just off limits, or being, you know, fine tuned and, and figured out and worked on. But it, it always just turns out to be like, oh, if we want to fix this situation, we got to time travel. So I. When that happened at the beginning of this, I was like, oh, no, no, no time travel. But then I liked the premise of this time travel thing, so I was okay with it. 
But by the time it got to blowing up the Enterprise, it was like, that's also, so it's like, well, you know, do you, at, at that point, I mean, the last movie, it was Kirk, you know, took a header. Mm-hmm. And, and and didn't the Enterprise, is that where the saucer <clears throat> section? Yeah, um, that, was, that was the end of D. Right. So, so you know, and, you know, there'd already, already been an Enterprise blown up in the original series. So I was like, okay, you know, they're pulling out two two just sort of movie tropes, you know, Star Trek movie tropes that almost seem like maybe they're used when there's a dearth of ideas, but they actually used it to turn it around on you. You know, they actually, they actually used it to, you know, they, they, uh, that the enterprise was actually saved. So they, I think most people were like, Oh, here we go. It's, you know, we're going to see the enterprise blow up and, and, you know, there were probably a good amount of people who are like, well, I'm not the biggest fan of this enterprise anyway you know <laughs> and but you started getting a clue that they may not blow it up when they were like well <laughs> we hardly got to know her you know or, you see know, i was so, the i was the opposite cuz they were just like was... so much for this enterprise and at that yeah. point i was like well may, you know you know there you know there's if they were really going to blow it up they'd be a little more somber about it so see i, I went the other direction i was convinced they weren't going to blow it up until Picard, until you know, um, Beverly says, "Do you think they'll build another one?" He goes, "There's plenty of letters that are left in the alphabet." I was like, "Oh shit, they're really going to do it." <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, but what I, one of the things I liked about it was that you know they, they they took it to the point where we saw the escape pods going. They took it to the point where when de- when Data deactivated the self destruct, it wasn't at one second, which is right. always where that crap always happens. Is, right? Because yeah, you'll find out they use the self destruct a lot in the in the next gen TV series. Uh, and it always stops at like one second or something yeah. like that, you know. And so I was pleased that it just stopped at some random, you know, little bit of time left. I was like, okay, that's better. Yeah, it was just it was just incidental that he stopped it. It was like, all right, they're all off the ship. Stop the, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I yeah, I like I like it when that stuff when when they don't fall into that trap or they trick you into thinking that they're gonna fall into that trap. It it, it lets you know that the screenwriters thinking you know i mean maybe i've been a little more critical of this than than it i re- i mean i really i i enjoyed it through and through watching it you know but i but i have i always have the same complaints about next generation movies in general for me always start out really strong and then kind of peter off and and this one and, th- and this one did this one started off really really intense but by that same same token, if they kept up that level of intensity all through it, it wouldn't have been a Star Trek movie anyway. So I, I did appreciate the, I I I, I honestly I am, not just happy with, but I almost would prefer. You know, just you know, if okay, so the next generation's canceled, you know, make two really you know. And put a season's worth of work into the writing. Uh, put a season's worth of work and money into a movie, and just make a, 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 a. You know, I don't think it's an insult when some, all the time when something is say, uh, just slightly jazzed up version of the TV version of it. Uh, what I liked about the Next Generation, which made it different from the original series, was that it was kind of dry. That it was kind of just a character-based science fiction premise show, you know, where they would, you know, it was it was almost like reading 
us, you know, each season was sort of like a science fiction anthology, the you know that they used to put out, mm-hmm. you know, where there'd be an Isaac Asimov story and a Arthur C. Clarke story, and except with strong characterization, where those guys would write like a ten-page story based on just what if there was a life form based on you know silicon instead of carbon what would it do you know and let's think of a story that would involve discovering that you know and it wouldn't even have to be a melodramatic story although they often were sometimes it would just be sort of something of scientific interest you know and it wasn't always good guys versus bad guys you know there was always these um you know points where sometimes some somebody would be painted at the enemy but by the end of it you would have empathy for them and both sides would be singing kumbaya and stuff like that <laughs> but it was it was very old school science fiction you know sort of a story based on a premise of something that hasn't happened but could happen in the future an idea or something like that it was very idea based and i liked that it was unlike other things on television it was it was like old star trek but it was unlike it and and it wasn't trying to be it was being a continuation of it but they actually thought out how things would be different and and did it in a very scientific manner you know as scientific as you're going to get with mass entertainment or whatever but i i like that i i i wasn't really looking to see next generation movies as you know uh next generation mixed with a action adventure james bond or or kicked up you know 10 notches into a space battle movie i i really don't care for that as much in i i'm not gonna refuse it if it's offered to me because it's always fun but uh you know in in star trek i always figure the action should hit every once in a while when the shit hits a fan you know uh and I can't remember which season it was. It may be the end of the first season and Next Generation with the, the parasites that take over Starfleet. Yeah, it's like the second to the last episode or so. But yeah, with the, there's the conspiracy and there's that guy who's a real prick who and, they get and, the little bugs in their mouth. Yeah, yeah and they, they build it up over a few episodes. And then at the end, people's heads are exploding and stuff. And, you know, and that's the way they rounded out that first season of the, the series. And it, and, and it, it was shocking that it was this violent action thing, but it was it was cool because it sort of just was, you know, it was saying, well, yeah, there is violence and horrible things that happen in the future, but just not that routinely. They happen as the, you know, consequence of something going horribly, horribly wrong. And I and, and like if you noticed in like in a lot of Star Trek by the time, whenever, like, say they come upon a civilization that's been destroyed or or there's a battle going on or something, they usually come in and deal with the aftermath of it, you know, instead of, like, the big battle that caused it. The, the... So I, 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 yeah, I, I would, I, maybe that's why I never was just, never really got too attached to these movies because they always seem to, that's maybe that's why Insurrection is my favorite one because it's the dullest one of all of them. You just you like know? the joy. You just like the Enterprise joystick. Oh, oh, I forgot but, about that. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> now, now let me ask you this: you're <laughs> talking all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Blanked that out. Um, let me ask this: since you're talking about Star Trek, you know, sort of passive 
uh, actions and stuff. I read the, I read this online today, and it really struck me, and I, and I can't stop thinking about it. Um, it was an interesting statement that said the Borg are unlike any other alien race ever shown in Star Trek because there's absolutely no effort to you know, like every other life form they respect they respect their ways they try and make peace they you know it's it's prime directive you back the fuck off you let that alien race be the way they are the, that's the way it is with every alien race except for the borg the borg are it, hitler that's why yeah i mean they're, they're the, the nazis, nazis. they it's perfectly okay to kill a borg you are not supposed to feel bad about it at all and yet, every other alien race in Star Trek is, you know, supposed to be respected and treated cry, with reverence. When they stuff. do kill them, they cry tears over it at the end. Yeah. And with the so Borg, it's... they would happily wipe the Borg off the face of the Earth, or off the face of the universe, yeah. <laughs> or what, yeah. whatever, out of out of the universe, or whatever. They would flush them out. Well, you know, the Klingons and the Romulans. There's neutral zones. You know, that's just that's just like the equivalent of countries squabbling with each other. But there's. You could get a Klingon and a human in the same room and, and have them, in, you know, back in the day and have them enjoy a, a tenuous peace, you know, or whatever. But the Borg are just unabashedly, you know, making their way through the universe and eat, like a virus, like a disease, as you were saying earlier. And um, yeah, and so it's so so they're treated like a disease. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and and at the same time, you know, um, if you really want to get into it, you know, until you've wiped out the last Borg, you haven't even killed a Borg. Borg is Borg. Borg is one thing. So, you know, you're just sort of, it's like hacking off pieces of the blob, you know. So, I mean, killing a Borg is just like, you know, is like... Wiping out, wiping out one neuron in a giant brain that keeps growing, you know, and just, you know, you're, so you're just sort of doing damage control and you're not, you're not actually, you're, 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 you're ending a life, but it's a life that, um, as Picard pretty much, you know, said, you know, is, is done, you know, he had no problem, you know, when, when his crewman said, help me, he knew how to help him, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. exactly. and, uh, but that also, uh, you may be able to answer this question because I haven't seen this is is if it is hopeless if it is hopeless if you're absorbed by the Borg how the hell did Picard <laughs> get out of it you know it's exactly. just like oh yeah well you know they had 10 million dollars to spend or whatever they don't have money then but you know that um I, I, I can tell you. I know where you're going. I can tell you how they rationalize this. Why? Why is it that they could save Picard, but they can't save anybody else? All the rest of his crewmen just get. Sh- he shoots his own crewmen. You know. Exactly. Well, see, when you're a CEO, you have special Borg abilities. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, they they claimed that they wanted Locutus, and that's why he actually had a name. No other Borg had a name. They wanted Locutus to actually be independent. Because he was supposed to sort of be the bridge between humanity and the Borg to help ah. convince humanity to that to allow the Borg to come in there. So and he so was they, like half Borg, or yeah, he he still retained some of his autonomy, um, and and they also wanted to pick his brain for you know different reasons, I guess, and whatever. So he still had some of his autonomy. So ah. that was the only reason they were able to bring him back, supposedly. Because yeah, because he was pretty cavalier about you know 
Usually, usually when it's like people have lost a hundred pounds, you know, and they're like, "Listen, brother, you know, you want to lose a hundred pounds? I'll tell you how." You know, you'd think Picard would be like, you know, <laughs> "I know where you are, man. It sucks." You know, we'll get we'll get that stuff off you. Instead, it's like, right. "Nope, you're done." <laughs> yeah, you, you're someone punched your ticket, and it's me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I wanted to talk a little about some of the merchandise, uh, unless you want to go. I don't know if you had any other topics you wanted to hit. No, 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 no. Go for it. I, no, that's something I don't. I I don't know anything about merchandise for uh, for this one. So you might have to fill me in on that. Sure. Well, I only I only know a little and only have a little bit to talk about. But like I I actually dug out my old VHS tape of First Contact because I, I actually bought it on VHS in '96 when it came out. And uh, I don't actually own it on DVD, so I was like, well, I guess i got to watch the VHS test. I still have the VHS player, too, because my kids have a lot of kids' movies on VHS yeah. that I figure, you know, why not? But it's just kind of fun because it's a, it's a good time capsule, this, this VHS tape, because it's got this lenticular cover, which you just mm, don't see. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's Picard. I love lenticular stuff. I yep. love it. It's Picard and Data and the Borg Queen and a bunch of Borg and the Enterprise. But as you, as you turn... Picard turns into Locutus, and Data, half of his face is exposed like it is at the end of the film, which is kind of cool. Uh, I always find that kind of stuff fun. But when I watch the tape, so you know they've got previews on the front of the tape, right? And one of the previews is for the Star Trek experience, coming soon to the Hilton Las Vegas, Ooh. which cracked me up. Uh, did you ever go out to that? No. Oh, really? Uh, I did. I believe I believe it's closed now. Um, if I under, it was either closing or is closed. I remember when it. I remember when it was happening. Yeah, it was. It's basically it was. It was a. It was an ongoing place you went in the Hilton. It was like a. It, it was. It wasn't like a, a touring exhibit or anything. It was a permanent fixture in the Hilton Museum, or Hilton Hilton Hotel. You'd go in and like you'd wait in line for this ride. It was a simulator. And so, like, you'd wait in line, and you'd be getting in, and they'd tell you, okay, you're going to ride in a, in a simulator of a, of a space, of a star, uh, shuttlecraft and whatnot. And you'd go, and, and this is pretty cool, actually. You go into this room, and it, the room literally goes black. There's a big wind, and the, and, and the lights come back up, and you're standing on a transporter pad. And it's a pretty cool effect how they changed the room from what it was into the transporter pad. I don't know how they did it. And I'm pretty good with gimmicks. My dad uh-huh. was a magician. I don't know how they did this. I mean, the floor underneath me is different than it was, and I didn't move. It's like, how it's, the fuck did, they, did they, they do that? It's, it's paint or something. It's, it's yeah. two different paints and different lights or something like that. I'm sure it's what it is. But it, it all happened so fast, I was like, what the hell? So it was pretty cool. It's like, you know, suddenly I'm on a transporter pad. And the gimmick is they're telling you, you've really been beamed aboard the Enterprise now for whatever reason, and you actually step onto the bridge of the next generation ship, and everything's bigger to, to accommodate the crowds, right? But it's, I mean, it's the bridge. The whole thing's there, man. It's really cool. It's like, oh my gosh, this is the bridge of the Enterprise. And uh, it's kind of funny, because there's people there in Starfleet costumes and stuff. Can you and, go drink at 10 forward? Um, you go drink at the the Quark's Bar, I think, if I remember right. Uh-huh. It's, it's from DS9. But it's just kind of funny, because like, the people on the ship are just paid actors that work there. And I guess we were coming at the end of the day. They clearly didn't care. Anyway, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, I'm thinking, Riker wouldn't stand for this on his bridge. They're you like, know? I got a hooker waiting for me after this. God damn it. 
like the Bajoran's nose piece doesn't fit right. It just it looked bad, <laughs> and it, it was it, the, the the exhibit thing was on its last legs anyway. I think at that point, but so and then you get it, you finally get in the simulator, and you're in some special shuttlecraft, and you're flying through, and I think you're chasing a maybe a Klingon bird of prey or something through Las Vegas. I mean, it's kind of crazy and goofy and kind of fun. And the Enterprise comes in and saves your ass. Um, it's a, it's fun. It, it was a neat thing. But to see the commercial for it, you know, in the front of this tape just cracked my ass up. So uh, so that's, that's, that's all I really had to comment on there. I mean, there, the DVD, from what I understand, there are no deleted scenes, which is interesting because, you know, that's one of, that's one of the things I always like to see is what scenes are deleted. But in preparation for this podcast, I went ahead and read the Star Trek First Contact comic book adaptation. Ooh. It was put together by Marvel back when Marvel had that Paramount Comics uh-huh. um, back then. And it's pretty much dead on. I mean, even some of it, even quite a bit's photo referenced. And so it, it, they obviously were working with a very, very near finished print when they did it. But there's just a few minor things that are worth noting, like... Um, Remember that bit when Riker's teasing Worf, and he says, "You do remember how to fire fire phasers, right?" And Worf like snarls at him. Yes. In, in there, Worf actually his response is, "It's the green button, right?" So I think the snarl worked better. Yes, I do uh, too. It probably was something that Michael Dorn was like, "I don't know. Let's try it this way." <laughs> you know, Worf That's would not pro- speak that way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you my Michael Dorn story later. Um, <laughs> then there's remember when. Lily has the phaser at Picard, and she hands him the phaser, and and he says, "This was set to kill you. Would have vaporized me." Yes. In the comic, he actually goes, "This is set on level one. It would have given me a nasty rash." Oh. So I th- I, I think the line in the film was much better. Yes. And the other thing they they left out, which I'm really glad they did, is there's this running gag about Worf puking because of the spacewalking. Like yes, and it's it's in there. You can see him a little queasy in there, but that's they just leave it at that. I was like, is Worf gonna puke in his spacesuit? That would be. Uh, well, they actually they actually yell at him at one point and say, "Don't you dare puke in your spacesuit!" And then later on, when they're back on the bridge, he's in the background ralphing. Oh, and uh, it's like you know, Worf's badass. You know, that's not yeah. He wouldn't ralph in front of people, and if he did, it would probably be like the greatest shame of his life. You know what I mean? <laughs> But he'd do it like a warrior. <laughs> exactly. He would just Ralph all. He would just walk up to everybody and just go. Rawr! <laughs> It'd probably be like start dissolving things. Yeah, it's like you know, half-eaten frogs come flying out and stuff like Job of the Hutt. Half a targ comes out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Peel it um, off your glasses. Yeah. That's really all I could glean from the comic book. The comic book adaptation actually isn't really that good. Uh, it's. Uh, clearly meant for someone who's already seen the film. There's a lot of shortcuts taken that I think if someone were reading it and hadn't seen the film, they'd be like, what? What is who? What is this? So uh, The I comics wasn't... are supposed to be more fleshed out. They're not supposed yes. to be the, the cliff notes. They're supposed to be a little expanded version. Well, instead of doing a miniseries, they just did a one-shot. And it was only like, I don't know, uh... maybe, maybe 48, 50 pages, 60 oh, pages. God. Yeah. It was short. It was short. Uh, so it was it was kind of disappointing. No, a movie should be at least sixty four page. I I, I prefer Nabbit. I prefer the old days of six you know, issues. Like a, yeah, three or six issues. Well, I guess three issues really is sixty pages, isn't it? Huh. Yeah, but it's I, just done. Like oh, those old Indiana Jones adaptations. Love those. Yes. 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 The um, other thing I the other thing I had that I thought was worth mentioning was the soundtrack. It's it's 
it's it's good. Uh, uh, it's, on vinyl, you got it on vinyl. No, I actually, I haven't. I have a compact disc. Uh, it was 1996. I mean, come on. Oh, that's really. right. That's true. <laughs> but one of the one of the things I like about it, and this is just me being stupid and nerdy because I'm I'm good at that, is you open it up, and you know how you have a CD sits in the plastic tray, right? Uh huh. And sometimes they, you know, they'll, they'll print a design on the disc, and sometimes they'll even print a design on the background behind the tray if they use clear plastic. Right, right. Well, the background of the tray is a Borg cube, like a full side of a Borg cube. So you've got, you open it up, and the, per, and the inside is a perfect square, and it's a giant Borg cube design on the background. And the disc itself continues the printing and has the Borg design there. So you're looking at sort of a complete Borg cube. Well, once you take the disc out, the disc is round. Uh-huh. So you're now holding like a Borg, sort of like the Borg sphere. If you, if you that follow is what really nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> it was very clever. It's like, oh, it's a cube, and you pulled the sphere out. Oh, that's really you know, it's circle. But it's like that's really smart. And maybe I'm just a big nerd for thinking of that. But that is um, smart. And yes, you are a big nerd. But <laughs> that's why you're on Two True Freaks, right? There now. you go. There you go. And One of the just, things. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, just a little aside. Um, don't ever get rid of your VCR and all you people out there don't ever get rid of your VCRs because yes they put out movies on DVDs now but someday you're going to be at a garage sale and you're going to buy a box full of VCR tapes of like home movies or weird awful you know made for TV things or instructional kids videos that were made for profit rather than instruct kids that are you know, awesome to look at that are never going to come out on DVD or, you know, or, or, or you're going to come up with, you know, somebody's box full of tapes and it's, the, you know, them having sex with their wives or something. So always have that VCR hanging out. You never know when you're going to need it, folks. I, I agree that you should always keep a VCR pretty much for none of the sentiments that Chris just listed, <laughs> but... <laughs> Maybe just because there's some good movies out there. Let's there just, are some good <laughs> movies that aren't on DVD too. Yeah. Yep. But in my case, I have like literally probably I don't know a hundred kids movies on VHS because my stepson's eleven, so VHS tapes are still around. My daughter's five, and it's like, well, all the movies he watched are still fine. There's nothing wrong with them on VHS. Right. And I've also got a zillion Doctor Who's on VHS. That I'm not going to pay to replace them in DVDs. It's just exactly. not worth it. Exactly. Exactly. So. But uh, one, one thing I want to mention about this disc, th- this disc is a neat little snapshot of a window in time, this, this mid-90s time frame before DVDs, but after the internet was invented. Uh, there's a small window between there yeah. where this, this is an enhanced CD. I don't know if you remember those or not. You took the CD, mm-hmm. the, you, know, you take a musical CD, and you pop it in your computer for extra content. And it would it would link you to a website, and it would have some pictures in it, and some you know yep. sometimes they would have a script on it or something like that, depending. And they very and a lot of times they didn't work at all. They would exactly. a lot of times so that technology would foul up the computer aspect of it and the music aspect of it at the <laughs> same time. Well, yeah. in this case, it's, it's like interviews with uh, director and producers and stuff like that. But it's funny. I, I popped into my computer and I, I run Windows Seven. It wouldn't recognize. Oh it. no! Yeah, it's it, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. It just said, uh, you know, even though it, even though the back says QuickTime and, and Macromedia, I'm like, well, shit, I have both of those. No, but yeah. it, it just says have this to have is for old earlier. versions. Yeah. Yep. This and, is uh, for an old version of Windows that cannot open it. <laughs> it's just like I had a friend who lived in Cleveland and he was a museum tour guide, 
which <laughs> if you saw this guy, I can never understand how he got that job. But he was a museum tour guide for a while, and it was uh, uh, when I think it was called Star Wars: The Myth and the Magic. Oh yeah, yeah, it was yeah. A museum tour that went around, and right. when it when it left his museum, he, they threw out all these um, interactive CDs that people would you would you would go into the museum and they would give you a little sort of Walkman CD thing that you would oh yeah yeah and yeah headphones and you would tour. put this in and you would walk through and you would get to Darth Vader's booth and you would push button one in it and James Earl Jones would be like Darth Vader you know blah 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 designed and blah 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 and uh, so I use I have a stack of these oh, cool. and they're not you can't get anything to read them or here I've heard a little bit of it because in the they they released like this Star Wars scrap I can't remember the name of it but it was a, like a scrapbook and it had two discs of radio ads and stuff and it had a little bit of James Earl Jones narration for that whole the whole tour for oh, wow. there's lots of Star Trek stuff and Star Wars there at this at that same time period cuz I remember my my when I bought Episode one of Star Wars. It was on VHS, and that's the last yep. VHS I ever bought. And uh, but uh, I remember there was a Star Wars interactive CD DVD ROM with like the Bigs footage on it, and there was all sorts of Star Wars Star Trek encyclopedia and I've interactive still, lo- DVD still, ROMs and stuff. I still have my Star Trek encyclopedia. I wonder if uh, I loved that thing, man. It probably I, doesn't I, work anymore. Probably doesn't. I hadn't thought about that, but it's sitting over there. I I freaking love that thing, dude. There's probably some fan out there who's built an emulator, you know, so you can you know download it at some you know if you're in the right news group or something like well, that because somebody's gonna always preserve that stuff because that stuff was it was really cool at the time and I remember you know I remember when you know, CD-ROMs were such a you know such an amazing idea and everybody would talk about all the things you could do with a CD-ROM. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this this is just a neat picture into that time frame. So that's all I've got on the merchandise. I mean, there were toys, and I, and I, I want to say this was the first time. Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm all right, Trekkers, tell me if I'm wrong or not. Uh, I want to say this is the first time they did the larger action figures. Like, they had done the... I don't know, were they glue play school guys, whoever it was, whoever made the you know the small next gen figures forever. Right, had been you know there'd been a zillion of them. The like four inch ones. Yeah, and then somewhere in there they started like a line of like seven or eight inch figures, and the sculpts were really good. But I could be wrong; it may have been Insurrection when they started that. But um, there were toys. I don't know much about them. But. I'll be paying attention this summer because I'll find them at garage sales. Sweet. They'll turn around and bins it. At garage sales, hills, yeah, end up in my greasy little paws. <laughs> you were talking about the budget earlier. The, the film's budget was about forty-five million, which nowadays is like chump change, totally. But that was know? pretty good, actually, for for then. But yeah, but still, it made one hundred and forty-six million worldwide. Yeah, but that's the thing. That's the thing about Star Trek movies is they always make money, but they but they always like. Actually, probably the ones that have made the least amount of money were the ones that had been budgeted the least. I mean, Star Trek The Motion Picture made a sh- boatload of money. Made a ton of money. And, and um, 
you know, the the studio system would still say, you know, when you do series of sequels, the budget always gets, you know, for, for I don't know why Star Trek was never considered and given the respect that James Bond was. You know what I mean? Uh, James yeah. Bond productions were always top of the line, you know, spare no expense, fly people around the world, best special effects. And Star Trek was always... Always had after the first movie, you know, the, had great special effects, except you know for uh, basically five. But at the same time, they had they had to throw it all into like a combined ten minutes of the movie, and then the rest <laughs> of it they had to do on the cheap, you know, with your your sound stages and your your you know floppy sets and you know the the whole nine yards. So you would always end up with like one or two set pieces where the special effects sh- shine and then the rest of the movie you know having a little more tv tv budget and i always thought that was just so insanely unfair to star trek movies should always be you know a a a, a gold standard you know i mean it's it's that's the double edged sword of the the remake is it, is that was treated like a gold plated you know release with with you know tons of money thrown at it and publicity and you know the whole machine turned on to to get it going but i wonder if they'll just do that again if if the the budgets will start shrinking on that too you know as as it goes on in time and they say well, you know, these make money, but let's see if we can spend less money on it. And if it still makes money, then, hey, we spent less money on it and made more money, you know. Yeah. That, that's oh, yeah. more of the thinking that went into Star Trek. And uh, was this post-Roddenberry, too? Um, it doesn't, doesn't, it, do, doesn't Generation start with for Gene Roddenberry? I, I believe you're right, because it's still got a little bit of the, rod. you know, it's got a little bit of the Roddenberry feel to it. The Roddenberry feels disappearing from Star Trek as time goes on because obviously like the ideas that Roddenberry had for Star Trek mm-hmm. which built one of the greatest franchises ever on the planet, for some reason people have no faith in those ideas it seems like. Some of the basic ideas that make Star Trek resonate and it was weird because Roddenberry had to constantly just fight tooth and nail to have those elements in his in his uh show and right. so without him there you know and without that champion you've seen the sort of you know the the focus going less from from characters and ideas to action and and drama you know well the i would also argue that after a while a, a concept just starts to get played out i mean next gen was again something like 179 episodes uh, DS9 was, you know, also also seven years, so a comparable number. Voyager was seven years, so another comparable number. You know, Enterprise only went four years, but it's just like, you know, there's there's a shitload of Star Trek out there, and they're they're you know what they've tapped almost every reasonable idea for now. They need a break. Well, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, when you make a Star Trek movie, spend the money. and and I know a million reasons not to do this. Hire your Harlan Ellison, you know? Yeah. Or hire your hire your writer who's gonna take a big idea, you know, and 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 take the take the idea aspect of it and 
that aspect of the TV show and expand that. You know, you can have some action in there too. You know, it's Star Trek. You got to have some action so you can have some good action music too. Hmm. But, you know, you know, expand. I mean, the Star Trek One, the Harlan Ellison's fabled. I don't know if he wrote a script or just a story treatment, but you know, at the end of the movie, they come to the end of the universe and they like tear open a hole in the fabric and the eye of God is looking back at them and you know it's like hey that's a pretty bit you know that's a pretty big idea and that's I'm comfortable with those being star you know I I think of Star Trek as being sort of the last surviving science fiction aspect of when when I was a little kid um, we had these two hippies that lived in our house that were boarders at our in our house and you know rented a room from us and uh i'll always remember the guy's name he was i was just a little little kid but his name was uh mark sokolov they probably only lived with us for like a month or two Mm -hmm. and uh and uh at one point he pulled out he you know he noticed that i was a reader and he pulled out a big box he had of his science fiction books and he just made this huge pile of them for me and wrote uh borrow and keep in some and hmm. so some of them I could keep some of them we wanted back and that was all the Asimov except for a nice copy of uh, iRobot which he which he let me have and so that was my introduction to science fiction novels and it mm-hmm. was Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke you know all the classics and you know I am sure he kept me away from like the Harlan Ellison and stuff at that point and so I basically just sort of got the you know the sort of PG to G rated a lot of science fiction was you know I didn't get any Heinlein or anything like that with any good sexy stuff in it I'm sure he had it though but um so that was what I always you know I mean the, literally the first science fiction book I ever read was I Robot which was basically just a book based on it was a it was a it was like Ray Bradbury did with the Illustrated Man. It was a brilliant idea for taking a bunch of short stories and binding them together. But you know, Asimov bound them all together with all these ideas about the laws of robotics and you know how would we build robots practically and what would we want them to do and what how and if they got too smart, what what would happen or if they went wrong, what would happen? And each story explored a different aspect of it, and that's sort of what I always thought of science fiction as you know and i mean that's why star trek or star wars was a big mind blower for me because i never thought of science fiction as fun action just like cowboy movie you know and uh so i always picture i that's what i mean nobody wants it you know there's there's people who want it but they're all old guys like me but i still you know that's what i want i want i love good thinking science fiction concept things i i would love a star trek movie where not a single phaser shot is fired where there actually isn't any kind of battle in it you know there might be a conflict or a or a problem that has to be solved there has to be it's a movie it needs conflict or something something like that but i would i would you know i i remember the onion did a video about how star trek nerds were rioting about the new movie because it didn't have any long scenes of you know people taking a problem to committee in it and uh i not that that's what i want but you know i i i do miss that aspect of of science fiction of it being a sort of intellectual the the intellectual appreciation appreciation of something that appeals to the intellect 
rather than the viscera nowadays is sort of sneered upon and I don't understand it, you know, or looked at as elitist or or whatever, you know. I mean, your brain's like any other part of your body, right? You want it massaged once in a while. Don't you? Anybody? I've done it. I finally put Shag to sleep. I think he really is asleep. Oh my god, I was. (laughs) 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 I mean, I'm sorry. Oh uh, man, I am proud of myself. I no, you were doing good. That I, must be a scintillating little rant I went on there. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. I, I had did you really go to sleep? Yes. I, I really did. I've, oh I've my god, like, this is I've been getting like three hours of sleep every night for the last four nights. Last night I actually fell asleep watching first contact, kept having to rewind it. I'm loving um, this. Uh, What's next? Comic monthly Monday. That means we gotta put Scott or Scott or Michael Bailey's going out in in the next one. No, man, you gotta ramp it up a notch. You gotta do a snuff podcast next. I so. I am so sorry. I am so very sorry. <laughs> you can either edit that or. or oh, the- no, sir. No, sir. I can't do that. <laughs> did, I, did I snore? Or did you ask a question? It did. You didn't get very far. You didn't get very far. You just got a, a few deep, deep breaths, but, uh. I was just like, "Oh my God, this is great!" He's pretending to be asleep. <laughs> I guess I was. Ta- I guess that's his way of saying I was talking too long. No, not at all. I just apparently was exhausted. <laughs> I, I... Wow! There you go, listeners. Right now, I'm taking I'm taking a marker and I'm putting another mark on my wall. It looks like it looks like the prison cell in Papillon, you know, right now. <laughs> another. Two True Freaks claims another victim. Well, I'd just like to say I think it's about time we wrap things up tonight <laughs> on uh, Star Trek Monthly Monday. <laughs> Shag, it's been a pleasure keeping you barely awake through uh, the last couple of hours. <laughs> oh my god, I'm blushing. <laughs> you know, right now, yeah. Will Sanchez is somewhere and he's the happiest boy in the world. <laughs> Oh, that's right. It was Will Sanchez, not Michael. He was Mayle. the first one to go down. He was the first one to go down. But now he's just like, he's just like, I, I, I think he's just breathing that collective sigh of relief that like a lot of like racial groups were were breathing after nine eleven when they're like, <laughs> not us, not us anymore. <laughs> Sanchez well, I, is just like, I'm off the hook now. <laughs> I sincerely appreciate being up being on the show. I really do, and and me. Falling asleep has absolutely no reflection on the film or you. It uh, does have it- a reflection on me indirectly, and in it says that you probably have a real life with <laughs> with things that, like, you know, things that you have to do that are important that tire you out. <laughs> well, I, I do my real stuff you know, with my wife and my kids and all that. Right, and, right. And I get done around 10 o'clock, and that's when I get to start my geek life. So... I, I tend to let my geek life stay too late. So my geek life starts mm. at 10 o'clock, and that's when I end up getting right. like three hours of sleep because I screwed around doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I watch Star Trek movies and, you know, bop around eBay and drink Mountain Dew all day, and it's, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's my problem. I ran out of diet, uh, diet Mountain Dew halfway through the show. That's what, that's what was the problem.
Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of... Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. That'll do, Pig. That'll do.